my mother-in-law is the scariest thing I ever saw. Dressed up like a trailer park beauty queen. Happy, happy, happy hillbilly Halloween. Hey guys, welcome to the fourth annual Hillbilly Horror Stories Halloween episode. Hey everybody. So we're excited. We have a bunch of podcasters, most of which I'm sure you're well aware of, that are on tonight's show. It's going to be an exciting, fun time to kick off the holiday. Sounds great. I'm ready for some good holidays. All right. As usual, we kick this thing off with a little story of our own. We encourage you guys to check out all of the podcasts that contributed to this episode. So if you like what you're hearing, go listen to their podcast and subscribe. We would uh, all greatly appreciate it, I'm sure. Of course. All right, Tracy, this episode is called The Uniondale Apparition. Sounds good. Early one evening, the spring of 1978, Corporal Van Yarsveld of the South African Army was riding his motorcycle along Barandas Willowmore Road. Now, that's near Uniondale in South Africa. He was on his way to visit his girlfriend in Louderwater Farm. He had some headphones on. He was listening to some music as he sped down the road. I'm guessing that these were probably not Beats by Dre, by the way, <laughs> considering not. this was in 78. <laughs> <laughs> Up in front, he sees an attractive, dark-haired girl just kind of standing in the road. Hopefully he ain't going to fall for that. Yeah, you would think not. <laughs> She was wearing a blue top and dark pants. So she looked as though that she was hoping that someone would give her a ride. Well, Van Yarsveld stopped, and obviously he's being in the military. He cautiously looks around, making sure that this wasn't a setup for him to get right. robbed. Mm-hmm. Once he was convinced that she was legit, he offered her a place behind him on his bike. He then gives her his extra helmet and a spare set of headphones so she could listen to the music as well. Oh, well, that was very nice. After a few miles, Van Yarsveld noticed that the rear of his motorcycle was very bumpy, extra bumpy than what it had been. He looks behind him to find that the girl was no longer on the bike. She's what missing. the hell? <laughs> he thinks that she may have fallen off a little while back, so he decides to go back and look for her. He has no signs at all of this woman anywhere, not on the road and not on either side of the road. So he's kind of checking on the countryside. Here's the strange thing. Like that wasn't strange enough. His spare helmet that he had given her mm-hmm. and his earphones, they were back where they were normally kept. What? Well, that was good. Well, I mean, I guess that you don't, I mean, you don't lose, at least lose your equipment. That's true. So the incident became news, and two local investigators by the name of Cynthia Hind and David Barrett decided to look into the story. Hind stopped at a cafe in Uniondale, and she talked to the owner a little bit, and he confirmed that Corporal Van Yarsveld had called there shortly after the incident, and he sounded deeply disturbed. Then his girlfriend also attested to him being completely rattled 
when he had arrived at her house after the fact. Investigators Barrett showed a picture to Van Yarsveld, which he recognized immediately. It was a 22-year-old Maria Rowe. Here's the problem, though. Maria had been killed on April 12, 1968. When the car driven by her boyfriend had veered off the road, obviously that was 10 years earlier than when Mm -hmm. he saw and picked up the young lady. So I wonder, you think maybe she didn't know, realize she had passed or something? I mean, that's, I mean, obviously she was looking for something. I don't know. And you're going to find, obviously, on this next part of the story, you're going to find it's got a little bit of a different twist to it. But, I mean, it doesn't sound like she knows she's dead. Right. I mean. I don't know if she, what she thinks happened or what have you. mm -hmm. So, anyway, there's, there's more to this story. Two years before this incident happened, a man by the name of Anton LaGrange, he had a similar experience. He had stopped to give a ride to a young woman who had asked to be taken to a specific address where this young lady just... Just kind of wanted to ride. Yeah, she just kind of wanted to ride. Maybe she liked guys with bikes. I don't know. Could be. This lady wanted to go to a specific address, though. And he said that the young lady disappeared before they reached that destination. That's bizarre. Yeah. LaGrange said that he heard a scream from the back of the car. He turned around and he saw the right-hand rear door just swing open. Like she just jumped out or something? That's what it seemed like. Oddly enough, there was a police officer just riding right behind LaGrange. And he also saw the door swing open, but he didn't see an apparition at all. He didn't see anybody. No human, no anything. Oh, man. This case unusually offers a number of independent witnesses uh, with plausible identification of the actual spirit. So you got a bunch of people who have seen it and people who say, yeah, this is exactly who I saw. Unlike some of these other stories, it was, no, I saw somebody, but I wasn't really sure. Right. Or just mm-hmm. a lady in white or whatever the deal was. Almost identical experiences have been reported over the last several years with travelers along that same stretch of road. Man, that is so dang creepy. So anyways, that's our little story to kick this off. Uh, Please enjoy the rest of the show. And happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. I'm Ian, and welcome to Ghosts and Bears, the podcast where we tell you the actual ghost story with the actual history in the actual place. On this episode, we're talking about the ghost of Agnes Bings. On September 29th, 1899, on a dark and stormy night, Agnes made a decision that she unfortunately would not live to regret. Coming up on Ghosts and Bears. I'm standing here in the inner harbor of Victoria, and I'm right by, actually I'm standing on Palazzas Rock. And Palazzas is a place that is 
pretty important to the Lekwungen people, the indigenous people who are uh, here. They um, believed it to be a place of great power, and they would often bring their kids, uh, their babies, to lie out on the rock because they believed they would absorb more power from it. We're also very close to the Delta Ocean Point Hotel, and uh, that's kind of what poor Agnes's story revolves around, is that location. Agnes Bing was a woman who, in September uh, of 1899, September 29th, 1899, uh, made a decision that unfortunately she would not live to regret. Agnes owned a bakery. Uh, in the red light district of town just on Worth Street and uh, she w- would often go home quite late depending on what was going on with the bakery and if she got off work or finished her work at a- an okay time she was able to take the streetcar uh, home it would go up Worth Street go across the Ellis Point Bridge and take her into Victoria West where she lived but if she was delayed then she would have to walk that route. And that would take about 40 minutes versus the streetcar, which took about 10 minutes. The night she left, the streetcar had stopped running. And to make matters worse, it was literally a dark and stormy night. So she decided to go a different way. And it was what was known around here and to the locals as the shortcut. Not generally because it saved you much time, but because it would mostly end with the end of your life being cut short. It was the railroad bridge uh, across the Inner Harbor. And back in those days, it was literally just uh, a track. There was no handrails. There was nothing. It was just simply a track across trestles that went across the water. Now we have a a big modern bridge and, of course, cars, bikes, people, everything. It's all good to go. It goes up and down. Very fancy. Um, But in those days, it was just a trestle that brought the train from the main part of the island onto the small space that is Victoria City. A lot of times there would be sailors who would get drunk and party in the red light district and then they would think they could save some time and cut across the shortcut and uh, it was pretty standard that at least a few times a month the police would have to get long poles with hooks on the end and pull their bodies out of the water where they had of course stumbled off, tripped, fallen in and drowned. When Agnes did not return home, she had a young daughter and a husband who was quite ill. Uh, She had uh, her family quite worried. And so her husband sent for the police uh, to come. Uh, He was concerned about his wife. It was now sort of three in the morning, four in the morning. She had not come home. He told them where she was, told them who she was. And because she was a reputable business owner, they immediately started to get to work. They went to the red light district. And uh, began asking around, and you know, even even sex workers need cookies, so they all knew who she was. And uh, they had two independently had said they'd seen her uh, heading out quite late in the dark and stormy night across the shortcut. Ah, uh, thought the police. Well, we know what happened to her then. They got their lanterns. They got their long. I don't know, dead sailor grabbing poles. I'm I'm sure it had a technical name. Uh, and they headed out across the bridge slowly uh, carefully looking for anything in the water that they could spot Agnes swirling skirts, flowing hair something that they could find her body with but they were in for a bigger surprise because they got all the way across the bridge and they found nothing there's just nothing there 
Once they had made it over to the other side, but at this point dawn was starting to break, and uh, in the far corner of the railroad yards there was a tree, and that tree was covered in crows that were swooping down and swooping up again, and no one really knew what was going on. But in the police business, they call this a clue, and so they headed over to check it out. What they found was a lot more gruesome than they'd bargained for. They found Agnes. She had been strangled, and then, unfortunately for her, she'd been sliced from her sternum to her pubic bone, wrenched open, and her organs had been displayed quite artfully around her body. Now, of course, only 11 years earlier, there'd been a murderer who had been practicing this very exact type of butchery, and it was, of course, Jack the Ripper. This was an interesting theory because uh, no one had ever, of course, caught Jack. Uh, Serial killers don't generally wake up one morning and say, you know, I think I'm done with this killing thing. I think I'm going to raise orchids. No, that's not what happens. They either get caught or they die. And no one had ever caught Jack. And there was no reason to believe he had just died. And so as a result, uh, they began uh, their investigation now, the media, of course, jumped on this Jack the Ripper angle, and uh, <laughs> surprise, uh, and of course, headlines are published quite quickly with the Ripper walks among us and Jack in the new world. People were terrified. This was one of the working theories the London police had, was that Jack the Ripper had made his way to the new world where he could kill a lot more freely in communities that weren't connected by strong communication ties and never get caught. For about six weeks, the city was plunged into absolute terror. There was a curfew. People weren't going out on their own. And, uh, of course, the media helped it all along very calmly by continuing to publish some rather inflammatory headlines. The police, in the meantime, six weeks later, still did not have any idea who had done this. Uh, Victoria was a rough place to be. This was not the uh, genteel tourist town we are now. This is a really rough town and uh, the police just weren't getting anywhere with it. They even brought in the Pinkerton guards from the States. They um, imported inspectors, detectives. They just weren't getting anywhere. In the end, they even turned to a psychic who, as it turned out, was absolutely no help. But she certainly fueled more headlines when she pronounced, he's killed before and he'll kill again. Eventually, the case just kind of lost steam. No one was murdered in the same fashion in Victoria, and thankfully, uh, it was the only murder of that nature we had here, but it was still never something that was solved. I should mention where I am now in the Inner Harbor. We have a very busy uh, aircraft uh, flight airport, waterplane airport, so you're going to be hearing some noise in the background like that, so I apologize for that. Now, though, uh, everything was sort of done and dusted. The only thing that would happen was people would see sometimes on the unused land across the harbor, the old rail yards, they would see a gray figure wandering around, often here where I'm standing on Palazzo's Rock. And uh, everyone who knew their history knew exactly who it was, that it was Agnes, and uh, that she was, of course, not resting peacefully. But it wasn't really a big deal until they built the Delta Ocean Hotel. Oh, good. Now the seagulls and the crows are fighting right beside me. Oh, my gosh. Shut up. Anyway, 
the um, the hotel was being built, and uh, there was this sort of six foot by four foot area that anyone who passed through, construction workers, people building, would feel panicked. Uh, in fact, there was more than one time they called an ambulance to the site because they believed these poor gentlemen were having heart attacks. They were having uh, shortness of breath, feeling like they couldn't swallow, uh, like they were choking. Their hearts would race. They would feel absolute terror. But what was more interesting was when they stepped through that space that was going to be in the future lobby, they were fine. There was no more panic. There was no more fear. And all their physical signs went back to normal. It was really when people began looking at the old history that they realized that was the exact spot where Agnes had been found. It's not a surprise that she was desperately trying to convey to somebody, anybody, what her last moments were like and what she went through in her final moments. Now she's seen here on Palastis Rock, usually at night, uh, kind of a faint glowing gray figure. She's also seen walking along the edge of the land where she was found around the edge of the hotel. People will see her through the windows of the salon. Some guests might catch a glimpse of her late at night through the windows of the hotel. Agnes still walks. Agnes never got the peace that she needed. And no one was ever uh, found for her crime. Now, so many years later, there's just no chance of that happening. No one's ever going to be, of course, caught or convicted. They may one day solve the mystery, but no one's going to pay for what they did to Agnes, cutting her life short, depriving of her, of her daughter, of her, her life, her business, everything. So this remains one of Victoria's more interesting haunted spots because she's still wandering around. She's still visible here on Palazzo's Rock. Is it the power from the rock that keeps that energy going, keeps her energy going? Or is it just her desperate attempt to find some justice? We're not sure. We are going to be talking to Dawn Kirkham today. Uh, Dawn has had her own experiences here. Dawn is a, a psychic medium. She uh, has a, a group called uh, Beyond Belief Paranormal. And uh, she is pretty insightful when it comes to these kinds of things. Dawn helped me out quite a bit with the book, uh, Victoria's Most Haunted, and I'm sure she'll have some pretty interesting things to say. This is Leslie Fear with Because I Want to Know podcast. I am contributing for Jerry and Tracy Polly for their Halloween episode on Hibbley Horror Stories. And today I have a special guest. Her name is Stephanie Smith. She is with the Haunted Shanley Hotel, and she has got some crazy stories to talk about. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I tell you what, the Shanley Hotel... I know a little bit about it, really enough to be dangerous. So tell me about the hotel, what kind of scares you, and then we're going to talk about something else. All right. Well, it was built in 1845 by a man named Thomas Rich, and it burned down 50 years later, and it was rebuilt within six months. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, without power tools. So that's quite an amazing feat. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Shanleys took it over in the early 1900s, and it's said that they 
more than dabbled in the Irish Mafia. Uh, Mr. Shanley actually was the black sheep of his family, so hence the Irish Mafia stuff. Yeah. So there's been a lot of things, lots of murders and suicides and things, unexplained deaths. Do you think that that contributes a lot to the hauntings now, or is that part of just everything that's kind of gone on in the hotel? I definitely think that it has contributed to it. We do have some spirits there that are actually Irish Mafia connected from oh, what we really? can tell. Wow. So they're still there conducting business. Are you So they haven't moved on. Are they scary or are they, uh, are they menacing? Do they threaten anyone or are they just hanging out because they like it there? I think it's a little bit of both. Really? <laughs> um, they, they try to intimidate us a few times, you know, and those of us like myself that are there all the time, obviously, we're not afraid of them. We're just like, ah, that's just their personality. You know, they call us a bad word. We're like, oh, thank you. We love you too, you know. <laughs> term of endearment for us now. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So tell me about some of the scarier things that have happened, because I do know uh, people have to sign a waiver to even stay at the hotel because it is so scary. And I know you've had people that have run screaming and crying from the hotel. But what are some of the scariest things that you've experienced? Because I know you are a tour guide and you're also a psychic medium. Yep. Um, Some of the craziest things that I've witnessed was there happens to be a serial killer on the third floor. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's not very nice. He is one that actually does like to harm people, myself included. Um, So there's there's particular times that he likes to be really super naughty and increase his strength by causing fear. And he'll choke. And he's bruised me lots of times. So what? Yeah. (laughs) Well, how do you handle that? I mean, can you not get rid of him? Or, I mean, I know you're a medium. That may not be your specialty. I know other people can do things like that. What do you think he's sticking around for? And can you control him or or handle him? Sometimes I can. There are times whenever I'm like, okay, Adam, what is my rule? And he'll actually say, don't touch the guests. I'm like, that's exactly it. You know, you start touching the guests and I'm going to diminish your power a little bit. And that's... That's when I actually, I've called upon St. Michael the Archangel before to help with other things. And every time I have, it kind of diminishes his abilities a little bit. So there's some sort of a weird connection there. (laughs) Wow. So let me ask you this. Do you think he's kind of a dark entity there? He very much so is. Um, The theory is, is that however you are in life, that's how you are in death too. And so he's taken this persona of mean guy, serial killer into the afterlife. I personally think he refuses to cross over because if he does, I think he actually knows he's going to hell and he's just like, nah, I don't want to go there. So he sticks around the hotel. So he sticks around and wreaks havoc on everyone. That's so lovely and nice, isn't it? (laughs) It adds to the entertainment. (laughs) Absolutely. So we got to talk about the dolls and the doll room. Uh, I'm not going to tell the listeners anything about what you do yet. I want you to explain to my listeners because this is blowing my mind. Do you mean the one in the black box or my own collection? Um, I, yeah, tell me everything. These, it's craziness. So we were given a black box that had two items in it that were supposed to be demonically attached. And so oh. it was, you know, sage, salted, smudge, whatever, blessed, kept in this black box. And every so often we would set one of the REM pods or another device on top of it. And if we made mention of the black box, it would start going off, which is, you know, that's really exciting when equipment starts going off, honestly. And over the past couple of weeks, we have decided to place the box where everybody can see it now instead of just off in a corner. And 
the thing is, is that one of the items that was in there was a woman and she kept calling to me saying, please help me. I'm good. I don't want to be stuck in this box with this thing. And last Halloween, another medium that was there was like, who wants to hold the voodoo doll? Oh, nice. <laughs> and <I was> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> An actual voodoo doll. So I was like, yeah, yeah. I'm already dressed as Annabelle. I might as well do it. So. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and as I'm sitting there holding her, she drains every bit of energy that I had. Like I was sitting there yawning and I don't ever sit there and yawn that early on in an investigation. Yeah. And but she took it all out of me. But afterwards she was just so peaceful and kind and we kept getting the name Deborah a lot. So um, she basically said she was made for a love spell. She was not evil. So I was like, okay, you, you get to stay out, you know, as long as you're really not doing anything to harm anybody or harm the hotel itself, then you're good. So she stays out. Okay. But now the other thing that's in there likes to kind of taunt us a little bit and let me out. I'm good. And I'm like, no, 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 you're, you're really not. <laughs> oh, really? Now, do you just get a vibe from it? Is it a doll? What What is it? And describe it to me. It is a very crazy looking clown mask. Oh, no, it is not. No, it is not. I am not afraid of clowns by any means at all. But this thing sends shivers down my spine. And the one time that I actually picked it up, I got an intense migraine and that migraine literally lasted for three full days. I could not get rid of it for anything. Wow. I'm not touching him anymore. (laughs) But okay, let me ask you this. Why are you guys sent this? I I know a little bit about why, but the listeners don't. So tell us why. The medium that had him before picked him up from somewhere that was like, I need this thing out of my house because it's causing havoc. So he took it, but then it was causing havoc in his home and he contacted the owner of the Shanley and said, hey, can I bring this thing to you guys? And she's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Not knowing what so. she was getting herself into, obviously. So, yeah. <laughs> but, but it sounds like you do a pretty good job of handling these things. Um, you've been doing your mediumship for a while. And of course, you're a tour guide. So you know every inch of that place and you know what's right mm-hmm. and what's wrong. Now, I do know you do collect uh, haunted dolls and people send them to you. I got to ask why. <laughs> <laughs> My infatuation with dolls started as a little girl. There was a porcelain doll that was in this display case of a restaurant that my mother used to take me to when I was super little. And I used to beg her for so long to give me this doll and she never would. Finally, she gave it to me and when she did, I broke it and I was heartbroken. So then I started collecting my own actual like Victorian era dolls that they're called Anastasia collection. So I have a lot of those. And then just scrolling through, you know, like Facebook Marketplace or Etsy or eBay or something, you know, I started getting little vibes from certain dolls and just started collecting them. I'd make sure, of course, first of all, that they were okay with coming here and that they weren't going to be something that would be harmful or negative because I have little ones in the house, so I don't want negativity in the house. But thus far, they've all been very, very good. There's one that gave me horrible, horrible nightmares the night that she actually came into here, the first night that she was here. And after I understood her story a bit better, then she's been calm as a dove. So, yeah, that would still freak me out. I'm sorry. I don't know if I could do that. And you, like, take them with you, you know, in the car. And you sent me a picture of, like, four of them sitting in the back seat of your car. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I sure do. Uh, and get broken into. <laughs> well, that's true. They're like, uh, you know what? Let's go pass on this one. They probably give the car a bad vibe. But, no, um, Stephanie... Tell the listeners where they can find you at the hotel and where it is. So look up the haunted shanleyhotel.com. It's also on Facebook. I'm Stephanie Smith. I've got posts on there, plus my own page is Fifth Element Paranormal. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram, and I've got a few TikToks with dolls and stuff too. So. 
Well, absolutely. And guys, I am again, Leslie Fear with Because I Want to Know podcast, and we want to wish everyone a very, very happy Halloween. There's something strange roaming the countryside of Montana. Something unusual. Something terrifying. Something possibly inhuman. My name is Derek Hayes, and I produce and host a podcast called Monsters Among Us. The format of my program is a bit different than most. I have a hotline that experiencers can call, share their encounters. Then I take those recordings and share them on the air. Well, it wasn't that long ago that I received a series of submissions that made the hair on my arms stand straight up. Each of the accounts originated from Big Sky Country, Montana. Now, these are the first reports as featured in my season 10 finale of the Hometown Legend episode. She was explaining about the goat man of Browning, Montana and how there's a specific stretch of highway where a goat man typically will run parallel with cars or will stop vehicles by standing out in the middle of the road on this highway. I guess he looks like a little satyr, like the one off of the Disney movie, The Hercules. But he uh, he's a smaller goat in stature goat man (laughs) but he does have the curl horns and he's got red glowing eyes and fangs for teeth and you know he was just she was scared I remember her being absolutely terrified but he told me a story of when he was about eight years old he was walking along the street below the cemetery from a friend's house And up on the hill in the cemetery, he saw what he described as a devil. He said it was a large, bluish-black furry creature with horns, and that the legs were like they were on backwards. They bent the wrong direction. And he said, you know, I told one of my good friends about it, the friend whose house I was at, and he said he had seen it too, but they never talked about it. Now, obviously, when you receive two calls telling similar stories in a place that's not known for that kind of phenomena, you tend to pay attention. So after some light research, I managed to find another mention of this peculiar beast. A mysterious Facebook post to a page called Native Ghost Stories, on which they posted the following all the way back in 2013. Early 70s, Brownie, Montana. I heard this growing up, and if you haven't heard it, then you're probably too young. The tribal cops got a call that a man was peeking in windows, so they go to investigate. Upon their arrival, they find the man. But he's not a man. He is short and very hairy. He runs from them, and the cops chase him all the way to the old housing building where they were able to corner him. Now they have spotlights on him, and he starts to run in a circle. The circle gets tighter and tighter. He then turns into this ball that is rolling really fast in a circle then shoot straight up into the sky. No one there could explain it, and the radios were a chatter with the cops talking about what they'd just seen. Now, if you're like me, 
you'll start to hear some similar attributes between these tales. Almost enough to make you wonder if this is more than a simple local legend or urban folktale. Well, after that episode aired, these stories were heard. I received yet another entry from the Treasure State. I presented more questions than I think answers. My boyfriend's aunt, she has had some pretty interesting things happen to her. Uh, I live out in kind of a rural area of Montana in a small town. Kind of everybody knows everybody. And I was at a family barbecue and she's like, well, I have a story for you. So basically this took place back in the 70s. Her and her best friend, they were outside of a gas station. They were smoking cigarettes and just hanging out. And this guy kind of approaches them and asks if they could give him a ride to the Jocko River campground. And I guess back then, picking up hitchhikers, it really wasn't that big of a deal. So they were like, heck yeah, get, you know, get in the car. And she said he was pretty quiet. There was nothing really weird about him. He had a long coat on. Basically, she said, you know, he wasn't creepy looking, nothing like that. Just looked like an average guy, I guess. Kind of clean cut, clean shave. So they get in the car and they're rolling down the road. She's fiddling with the lighter because she was going to light up another cigarette. And she drops the lighter on the floor and she bends down to pick it up. And it's, it's kind of tucked underneath the seat a little bit more. She has to like, you know, kind of stretch to get down there. And as she's grabbing the lighter, she looks under the seat and this man has hoods. She swears up and down to this day, this man had hoods for feet, black hair, black hood. Now, she said basically she grabbed her lighter, she sat, sat like back up in her seat, and she said she just tried to keep cool, and when they got to the mile marker to turn off to the campground, she said they got about halfway down the road, and she said she turns around to say something to him, and he is gone. Literally nobody else in the car besides them. She says she freaking just screamed, and she said that her friend just flipped the Yui, and they got out of there. And to this day, she says that her and her best friend gave the devil a ride up the road. Now, two times is a coincidence. Three times is peculiar. But four reports. Well, that's a flap. So, convinced I could unearth more information, I set out in search again. And that's when I found something equal parts fascinating and terrifying. In 1946, a creature that can only be described as a beast had attacked several homes on the Blackfeet Reservation, including seven in Brownie, Montana. As the story goes, each victim was ripped to shreds, then eaten, as if by a wild animal. Now, several of the victims, however, were found at home, as if they had invited their killer into their homes. In Glacier National Park, authorities and an assembled kill team of hunters cornered what they believed was this animal in a cabin. Apparently, they shot it, or at least they believed they had shot it. But when they entered the cabin to retrieve the dead animal, to their shock, they found only the body of Richard Watkins. After that, the murders stop. Now, back in the day, this case was fairly high-profile as the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, actually traveled to Glacier National Park to investigate this strange happening firsthand. Now eventually, Hoover locks the case away, and what will later become known 
as the FBI's X-Files. So I suppose the moral of this story is that just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean it's not out there. So if you find yourself in the state of Montana on a long and desolate stretch of highway, keep your eyes open and maybe stick to the main roads. Especially at night. This is David Flora from the Blurry Photos Podcast. The following is a creepy little story I read on one of my recent episodes. If you'd like to hear more ghost stories like this one, I've done a ton over the years. Just visit blurryphotos.org and go to my archives page to find more. And if you want to hear more in-depth stuff on topics like cryptids, true crime, conspiracies, weird history, or even me losing my cool about flat earth theory, check out Blurry Photos. I'm everywhere. Fine podcasts are free. Thanks again to Jerry, Tracy, and Ninja. Enjoy the story. Hermit. You ever heard what happened to Louis and Edna Campbell? Back about the winter of 1938, the Campbells had a grouchy old hermit neighbor. Old Ebenezer lived a quarter of a mile across the cornstalks. Campbells could see his face all right and could see him walking around the yard, but they didn't dare go there. Ebenezer had threatened to shoot anybody who came onto his place, including Louie. Got so bad, the milkman wouldn't even stop at Ebenezer's. Louie said, Edna, sometime he's going to fall down in his house over there. He's going to die with nobody to help him. He'll be dead in his house for months before anybody finds out. Well, don't you go over there, Edna said. He's promised to shoot you as well as anybody else. One Sunday in January, a terrible blizzard blew up. Blew all day, dumping snow in the ditches and the trees. Finally, late in the afternoon, the weather cleared off, bright and cold. Louis said, Edna, Ebenezer doesn't have any smoke coming out of his chimney. That night, Louis said, See, Edna, no lights shining in Ebenezer's window. That old man's down in his house. Don't you go over there, Edna said. You've probably gone to bed and covered up to keep warm. Louie didn't like it. The next morning, the thermometer was way below zero. See, Edna, there's no smoke in his chimney. I'm going to go check on it. Don't you go over there, Edna said. Call the county sheriff. No, Louie said. Ebenezer has enough trouble already without an assault on a law officer to add to his troubles. Louis stewed around all week. No smoke in Ebenezer's chimney, no light in his window at night. The next Sunday, wind howled all day with the temperature still below zero. Late Sunday afternoon, Louis paced back and forth in the kitchen. There's just no sign of life over there. I'm going to do something. I, I just don't know what. Call the county sheriff, Edna persisted. No, I'm not going to do that. 
wind blew a bucket loose from the windmill and rolled across the yard. The back door banged when fresh gusts hit it. Louie, Edna said. There's somebody at the back door. Somebody's banging on the house. Oh, no, Louie said. That door's been banging all day. No luck, Edna said. Louie went out into the back porch and, to his amazement, saw Ebenezer. The old man paced up and down past the door, banging first on the door and then on the side of the house. He was coatless, his rags blowing in the wind. He muttered and struck the side of the house. Well, Ebenezer, Louis shouted. Come on in, I've been worried about you all week. No, no, leave me alone, Ebenezer grumped. Look, Louis said, you don't have to talk to us. We'll go off in the other room and close the door. You just come on in by the fire, and when you're ready to go home, you just knock on the door. I'll take you home. I won't say a word. No! No! Ebenezer shouted. Leave me alone! And with that, the old man turned and walked off through the cornstalks, heading home. Louis stood in the doorway, watching the old hermit stumble over the stalks. He'd tip over in the wind and catch himself. His rags blew off to one side. Overhead, a chunk of moon was shining. Edna called. Louie, shut that door. You're filling the house with snow. Louie came back in, walked over to the closet, pulled on his sheepskin coat. He put on his fur cap and boots. I'm going to follow him home. Make sure he gets there. You'll get shot. He doesn't have a gun or anything, Louie said. He can't hurt me. Edna brought Louis's scarf and tied it around his neck. <sighs> you be careful, she said. Louis tramped through the corn stalks, following Ebenezer's tracks, which were already filling up with snow. Ahead in the pale winter moonlight, Louis could see Ebenezer hanging on the fence. He had tried to crawl through the barbed wires of the boundary fence and had become entangled. Louis broke into a run. I'll help you out, Ebenezer he called. He grabbed Ebenezer's shoulders, but the old hermit was stiff as a board. Louis backed up, shocked. When he came closer again to look, he could see that Ebenezer was dead. Louis ran back to the house, came in out of breath, and ran to the telephone. What's happened? Edna asked. He's dead, Louis said. Found him hanging on the fence. I'm, I'm calling the county sheriff. The sheriff said he would call the county attorney and bring him along in about an hour. Louis went out to the barn, poured hot water into his farm all regular tractor, and got it started. When the county attorney and the sheriff arrived, they climbed onto the tractor drawbar and rode behind Louis out to the field. They couldn't remove Ebenezer from the fence immediately, because his frozen fingers were clamped around the barbed wires. Louis brought a screwdriver from his tractor toolbox to pry up the fingers. They laid Ebenezer's body on its back in the snow. The county attorney shone his flashlight up and down the body. Then he turned to Louis. You say this old man came to your house tonight? Yeah, Louis said. Came in and banged on the door. That's how I knew he was down here. I followed him back through the field county attorney shook his head in disbelief. I don't understand it, he said. Because it's clear from all the evidence of the body that 
This man died in the blizzard a week ago. Hey guys, we typically haven't done these on the Halloween episodes as far as little mini interview, but uh, last month I had M.R. Gorgon. He had wrote the book Demons Among Us, and he had a really freaky story that I decided I wanted to hold off and use for the Halloween episode. So thanks for coming back on with us, M.R. Uh, thanks for having me back on. I'm uh, excited to be here. Thanks. We're going to jump right into this. You have a, a spooky story that's in your book. The book is available, obviously, through Amazon. It's an Amazon bestseller. Demons Among Us got some great ratings in there. Why don't you go ahead and start the story you got for me? Well, the story is more than, more than spooky. It's downright chilling. And the story is the story that could be found in chapter three of uh, Demons Among Us and is the most haunting and most scariest encounter with demonic spirits I've ever encountered. And the story goes a little bit like this. I was working at a local newspaper at the time in the marketing department, and I had lost my job, which meant I had to leave my swanky downtown apartment. I headed out west. I ended up moving into a home that one of my relatives had uh, sort of left and abandoned. And it was sitting there for some time. Uh, so when I pulled up to the house, it literally looked like the Munsters or the Adams family lived there. I mean, it was, you know, it was it was going into decay. The fence was dilapidated and colorless. It was just raw wood. The door was even creaking on its hinges, like in the mild breeze. Right. And the house was creepy. It reminded me of like uh, Amityville Horror House in a sense that it had these two large bay windows and it looked out over the lot like these two vacant eyes so when i walked in for the first time it was heartbreaking because everything was still in the house meaning that they left on you know on very short notice and there were toys all over the place there were letters on the on the kitchen table there was milk in the fridge dishes in the sink and it literally look like they could come back at any moment. They just ran to the store for something. So I get settled in and one night up in the, the upstairs bedroom, I'm trying to go to sleep. I start to smell this really foul smell permeating through the house. And it smells a bit like rotten eggs with like a chemical gassy note to it. And so I, I get up and I'm like, where in the world is that coming from? And I'm smelling around upstairs. And then I go and I start smelling around and I go downstairs. It's not the garbage. It's not the, it's not anything. And so then I, I look up at the air vent, the AC vent. I hike up on a chair and there I start to, uh, I smell this odor coming out of the AC vent and this rotten smell is just blowing straight onto my face and it doesn't smell like anything you know any normal garbage or anything and so i started to get really suspicious suspicious that something was was really wrong here something was really going on so i get off the chair and then i go to the utility thing and i cut the power to the ac so i go back into the kitchen i hike back up onto the chair 
and the smell is still coming out of the AC vent and it's blowing into my face without any mechanical assistance or any electric driving it. It's just blowing out. And so I know at this point something's happening. And so I'm just sort of like bracing myself for whatever is going to happen next. And I go back upstairs and I, uh, I start to go to bed and I, I start to go to sleep. And as um, I'm sleeping, I'm on my side and I see something, the light flash from beneath my eyelids. You know, you can see like the change of light, you know, from underneath your eyes. And so I see that and I'm like, what in the heck? I don't even want to open my eyes. So I turn back over <laughs> and, uh, and then from out of the darkness, I hear something call my name and it says, Michael. And it lasted real long and real slow. And it was spoken real serpentine. But the funny thing was it sounded as far away as it sounded, it sounded very near. It was almost as if it was spoken from like the back of a cave, like an echo. And, and I was like, oh man. And so then I rolled over and I opened my eyes and there was this figure in black at my bedside. It was tall, lanky with crooked shoulders. And it was hovering over my bed. It was hovering like, you know, it was looming over me and I could see its semblance of its face set deep back into the cowl of its, of its hood. And it's deep set in blackness. His eyes were like just empty sockets, like, like empty graves. There was no light in its eyes. There was nothing. And it was smiling with this broad, sinister grin all across its face. And I looked down and its hand was crawling up my chest and it was going to choke me to death. That's why I was smiling because it knew what it was going to do. And so um, that was the scariest. That was one of the, the scariest moments I've ever had, because that was the first time um, I've had many, many experiences with with demonic things. But this was the first time I've actually uh, like saw it in that regard. And it was physically touching me. Like I can, as, as clear as I could touch anybody else, that's how it was touching me I physically felt this touch. And so I was looking at it and the, the figure was really, um, actually kind of amazing for her as demonic and evil as it was, it was, it had this black robe, um, and on the bottom of its robe, it wasn't like shreds or anything like that. It was, it was rectangular strips, almost like, uh, like in Florida, we have these, uh, these blinds here. Um, oh, like the vertical so, blinds, like vertical blinds. Yeah. And it was almost like vertical blinds, but they, they, they got uh, in the front and they were sort of like dusty, dark gray. And the deeper it went, the darker it went. And the strange thing about it was that it was as physical as it was spiritual, meaning that there were parts of the bottom of it I can see through. And one of the most interesting things is it was 
the way the bottom was, it was looked like it was like sort of like moving from underwater. Like it was the bottom of its, of the gown just looked like it was floating underwater the way it was flowing. That was the most scariest, most frightening moment uh, simply because these things, they come, oh, it comes with such a dark power, a dark paralyzing power. So when it showed up, I was paralyzed. I was frozen. It takes a second to actually register like what's happening. And it came with this, this hot, malicious hatred. You can feel it coming off of it. But not only can you feel it coming off of this evil entity, not just on your skin or anything, but I felt it burning through my body like hot boiling tar. You can literally feel this intense, hot hatred that it had for me. And not only for me, but for humanity and those <laughs> and people, you know, and um, and so it was bent on killing me. But that's what was that was one of the most frightening experiences I've ever had it was the first time I've ever had the spiritual translate into a physical into the physical touch on my on my physical body, you know, at my bedside. Well, well, thanks for uh, giving me a reason not to want to go to sleep tonight. <laughs> I hear it a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that story on our Halloween episode, MR. The book is Demons Among Us, shocking real life stories from the paranormal. Pick it up on Amazon. MR, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed that extra little segment from Hillbilly Horror Stories, but uh, I thought it was cool enough to add. Hey, Hillbillies, this is Todd, Sean, and Nate, and our podcast is called Middle-Aged and Creeped Out. And before we tell our story, we want to give a special thanks to Jerry and Tracy for inviting us to be a part of their fourth annual Halloween special. And we uh, couldn't be more excited and honored to be on this episode with so many awesome podcasters. So thank you very much for that. And Sean, why don't you tell the listeners what we're going to talk about? I will. It's the uh, Rivoli Theater. And it was built in 1927 under the auspices of Carl Lamell Jr. of Universal Pictures Corporation and its movie theater division. Universal changed, uh, Chain Theatrical Enterprises, Inc. and designed in a Spanish mission revival style by architect and firm Henry Ziegler Dietz. Uh, the, the Rivoli Theater was a modest 1,500-seat cinema venue on uh, Indianapolis's east side, so it's off of 10th Street. Uh, it opened September 15, 1927, with Glenn Tryon in Painting the Town. It was equipped with a Robert Morton II manual organ. I didn't know there was such a thing. Uh, the Universal sold out their interest in the theater in 1937, and the theater changed hands several times. It closed January 1st. 1975 with Walt Disney's Fantasia. It uh, reopened under new management and briefly screened regular movies before turning into adult movies uh, and until the uh, theater eventually closed again. 
the Rival- the Rivoli Theater still boasts the largest theater stage in all of Indianapolis. Uh, it also hosts uh, live concerts in the 70s and 80s and closed down again in 92 uh, and has been dormant for several years. Um, the theater has been uh, reputed to have many hauntings and good stories. Uh, so I'm going to actually tell you the first one. Cool. Um, the owner who's had it since 1976 and has been part of a lot of, he took possession and has done a lot of the uh, renovations. It says, even though the theater is presently closed, Mr. Colkian maintains a strong presence in the building and insists that he encounters Lady Rivoli almost on a daily basis. Recently, the ghostly activity seems to have increased. Several objects frequently disappear. A special letter written by Mr. Culkin's mother hung on the wall in the projection booth for almost 25 years. This letter recently disappeared off the wall, not to be found. Mr. Culkin's eyeglass holder uh, that he keeps in a dresser disappeared minutes after he put it in the drawer. And three days later, the holder was found in the middle of the living room floor, minutes after Mr. Culkin had walked through the room. And then the holder was not there, had not been there. Uh, Special batteries were also taken from the dresser drawer, only to be found the next day on the floor in the bathroom of a separate apartment on the east side of the building. Mr. Culkin's cell phone also disappeared out of the dresser. After he spoke to Lady Rivoli, telling her he'd be appreciative if she would let him know where it was, he found the phone at his house the next morning. Uh, he presented a wrought iron chandelier that hung in the woman's, uh, women's powder room to a friend. Late one evening, Mr. Culkin visited his home, and while they were sitting on the back porch, they heard a loud crackle sound like electricity popping emanating uh, from the side of the house. After ignoring three episodes of this sound, they heard a large bang as though someone took two metal trash cans and crashed them together. They found nothing disturbed. As they, the, as they further investigated, they found a large brick had been thrown into the bed of his pickup, hitting it so hard it almost disintegrated into powder. And other strange happenings at the Rivoli included lights turning on and off by themselves and exploding light bulbs. Unexplained noises such as metal rubbing, uh, crashing glass, and softened voices have often been heard emanating from the auditorium. But not all encounters are mischievous. Some have been quite helpful and protective. Lady uh, Rivoli was instrumental in protecting Mr. Culkin as she prevented him from falling 85 feet onto the auditorium floor when the roof collapsed beneath him. By physically moving his feet to land on a supporting truss, Mr. Culkin's car has been mysteriously repaired and also inside his uh, inside apartment doors mysteriously lock when visitors enter. And it said before the uh, Rivoli was built, there used to be an old farmhouse there and many, uh, many other occurrences, weird occurrences happened in that house. And before the farmhouse, it was actually an Indian burial ground, which always an Indian burial ground. always goes back to the Indian burial grounds <laughs> every time. Yep. Gosh darn it. Um, so thank goodness that uh, Miss Ribley, Lady Ribley, was nice and not uh, wicked. Or She came to his rescue. Yeah, and I thought uh, the, his vehicle getting repaired yeah, seriously. Like, she's a mechanic. Yeah. That's pretty wild. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive, you know. She's a helpful spirit. Yeah. Yeah, some, uh, some other stories have been um, the, they've opened up the theater on some days. And looked into the auditorium, and there's already people sitting in the seats. Like, wait a minute, nobody's come through the door yet. Yeah. So they go to approach these people, and they just 
dissolve, disappear. That's wild stuff. That's spooky. And then one of the main ones is a guy, a man, he's dressed in his uh, evening best attire, you know, tuxedo or whatnot, Mm -hmm. and he's frantically running up and down the aisles (laughs) and in and out of rows and then runs through a wall and disappears. He's keeping up appearances, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. That's cool. That'd be freaky. Oh, yeah. Especially when you you see a bunch of people and they're sitting there and then you're like, hey, and then they're gone. Yeah. And wait a <laughs> like, minute. You're not supposed to be. In- yeah, right. Okay. They're, where'd they go? <laughs> okay. I guess they'll be back maybe. Yeah. What? Uh, and yeah. then uh, down in the boiler room, uh, I believe it's the current owner, uh, went down there to work on the boiler or whatever and felt cold hands give him a hug from behind. Mm-hmm. Looks down. There's nothing there. Oh, man. So he uh, bolted back up the stairs to the light. It's getting to know you, right? <laughs> a little too close. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, I'd bolt up too. Yeah. Huh. That's uh. I don't know about that one. That's kind of creepy. I don't know about oh, that, yeah. right? Yeah. A little sque- cold squeeze. <laughs> Is that what it's called? Cold squeeze. Okay, so I'm going to finish off the hauntings with a couple of stories. Uh, the ladies' powder and restroom is known to be haunted. It says here, women patrons reported incidences of being alone in the bathroom hearing the toilet flush, seeing the door to the stall open and close, and watching the ivory faucets turn on and off without any help. Sometimes this entity, a woman, appears in solid form in this bathroom, fooling the living into thinking that she is a real person. Then she suddenly disappears for chuckles as the living become unnerved. That's kind of interesting. And the second one says here, a lady apparition has been seen standing on the stairs which lead up to the projection room. While in the projection booth, the owner was making repairs and saw out of the corner of his eye a female presence presence standing there watching him. Thinking it was one of the female staff, he asked her to pick up a tool he needed, which was out of his reach. When nothing happened, he looked up and saw nothing. He then remembered that his staff weren't due there until later on. Oh. Very creepy. It is creepy. Yeah, that bathroom one's a little, little, little creepy, in my opinion, because you're sort of... At a worst case scenario, <laughs> if you, you don't mess with the man's bathroom, is what he's trying to <laughs> say. Not the place you want to be haunted and seeing some crazy stuff. Toilet, I get it. Yeah. Toilet time is very sacred. Yeah, that that's the place where you're like, can I have a little privacy? <laughs> right. But I, I guess you're at the right space if if you know. Oh, is, things happen. You, you just <laughs> took this down a whole other road. I love it. <laughs> that is that is true. You might as well be in the right place. Yeah. Sorry, hillbillies. <laughs> yeah, no, I think they'll enjoy that. <laughs> they they might even have it experience themselves. <laughs> they're like, that's right. <laughs> So, yeah, so that was the Ribley Theater in Indianapolis, Indiana. So, very cool place. Very cool, and it's close to our hearts since it is Indiana-based and it's an Indiana haunt, so. I'd like to go check it out sometime. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that'd be cool. And, Nate, I know you said that you had never heard of it before until. No, not until we researched for this. Yeah, Yeah. I've only driven by it a few times, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, but I've never been in there. So, hopefully they can uh, get it all remodeled and up and running again. Back on its feet, right? Yeah, that'd be cool. So, Sean, why don't you tell the listeners how they can listen to us and find us on social media? Absolutely. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Middle Aged and Creeped Out. And you can listen to us on your favorite podcast platform. Awesome. Thank you, sir. So, Nate, what do you think? Well, I really had a good time tonight, guys, but that's a wrap. (laughs) Well, there you have it. Thank you so much, Jerry and Tracy, again, for having us on your Halloween special. We had such a great time. And until next time, Nader's your sound engineer. We are your hosts, Todd and Sean, and we are middle-aged and creeped out. Keep it creepy.
Sherry and Tracy for yet another invite to the Halloween special. This would be our third year now. A lot has changed since last year. Here at Triple H Media, we now have three new audio dramas in the works. The first one, and beyond, will be starting in just a few short months. You can find us by searching for HHH Media or Hillbilly Horror House on any podcast player or app. You can also visit the webpage at www.hhhmedia.net. As always, headphones are not required, but to receive the best experience, it is highly recommended. Now, let's give you a sample of what Triple H Media is all about. We've been in this cave for hours looking for them. Stop whining. If it were us lost in this system, you would want others to keep searching. But we've had no signs of them whatsoever. Nothing. Hold that thought. Is that a light up there? Yeah, I I think so. Call them. There's no need. We're too deep. The signal would never reach them. Come on, let's check it out. Wait, is that a flashlight? Yes. Oh, finally, some kind of sign that they were here. But how is the light still on? Those batteries should be dead. Never mind, there it goes. Hey, look in that cutoff. There's something in there, too. Let me check it out. I'll be right back. Hey! What? That tunnel, it's not on the map. What do you mean? I mean, the tunnel is unexplored. It must be newly opened. Yeah, well, you may want to come see this. What you find? A backpack. I haven't opened it yet, though. Well, what are you waiting on? (laughs) Open it. Shh. What was that? It was nothing. Caves make noises. Yeah, well, I've never heard that noise before. Stop. You're going to freak yourself out. Now come on. Let's just open the bag. Yeah. Okay. Let's see what we have. We have, let's see, snacks, water, glow sticks, and rope. The usual. They, well, they were prepared, that's for sure. Then why are they missing? Now, that's the million dollar question now, isn't it? There. I hear a noise again. It, it came from down there. Then there's only one thing to do. 
run away? <laughs> no. We go check it out. Come on. I'll even carry the bag. Wow. Real gentleman right there. And there he goes. Just try to keep up, will ya? Amanda. Amanda. Dang, I told her to stay close. Blood. So, so, so much blood. What the hell was that? Oh, it's coming. What do I do? What do I do? Hide. Yes, hide. I need to hide. Whoa, 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 whoa. There. I can hide in there. Remember to check us out on your podcast player app. Just search for HHH Media or Hillbilly Horror House. Check out our website at www.hhhmedia.net. Enjoy. Everybody, I'm Brett, and I'm Carl, and we're the two hosts of the Evil Never Dies podcast. First of all, we want to thank Jerry and Tracy Polly for inviting us to do this little story 
on their Halloween special. This story comes to you from my hometown of Bartonville, Illinois, and the Peoria State Hospital. It opened in 1901 under the direction of Dr. George A. Zeller. In one of the many cemeteries on the hospital grounds is a grave marked 713. These numbered marked graves are not uncommon here. The reason? The hospital was an asylum. Patients were admitted in troubled states, and many were incapable of providing a name. One such patient suffered a breakdown while working as a bookbinder at a Chicago print house. The patient was mute and could not communicate his name. The court clerk who, si who sent the man to the Peoria State Hospital recorded his name as A. Bookbinder. He was also given the nickname of Old Book. Mr. Bookbinder spent his time at the hospital working as a grave digger. Burials at the hospital cemetery were usually quiet and unattended events with no relatives or close friends to mourn their passing. Stories describe each funeral ending in Old Book's great outpouring of emotion, weeping and sobbing by a large elm tree at the end of every service and was known to be called the crying tree. In 1910, Old Book himself was called to the hereafter. After seeing him mourn for so many others, the nurses, doctors, and staff members, and even patients attended his funeral. The total number of spectators of the dramatic events that would soon follow may have been close to near 300. Four men slowly lowered Old Book's coffin into the freshly dug grave while a choir sung Rock of Ages. Suddenly, the four men slipped and fell backwards, and the coffin sprung up in the air as if it lost all of its weight. In the midst of the commotion, a wailing voice was heard, and every eye turned toward the cemetery elm from where it emanated the sound. Every man and woman stood transfixed, for there... Standing, just as he always done, stood old Book, weeping and moaning with an earnest that rivaled anything he'd ever shown before. After a few moments of this, Dr. Zeller summoned some men to remove the lid of the coffin. He was convinced old Book could not be inside of it. The lid was lifted, and as soon as it was, the wailing completely stopped. Inside the coffin lay the body of Old Book, unquestionably dead. It was said that every eye looked upon the still corpse and then over to the cemetery elm. The apparition had vanished. It was awful, but it was real, Dr. Zeller said. He saw it, 100 nurses saw it, and the 300 spectators, they all saw it. Within days of Old Book's funeral, the crying elm began to die. Workers attempted to remove the dying tree with axe and later fire, but each time they heard a loud sobbing sound and fled the task. Well, that's the story of old book, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it and happy Halloween.
Happy Halloween, everybody. And watch out for Old Book. Stay evil, everybody. Have a good one. Welcome, everyone, to the Hillbilly Horror Stories Halloween special. I am Shane Grove, the host of the From the Shadows podcast, and with me, as always, is my super producer, Jason. Greetings, everybody. Hey, and in the spirit of Halloween, we have a guest here uh, that we're going to introduce. He's going to tell some ghost stories. I, I hope they're scary enough. I know they scared me and Jason, but then Jason and I are in a very... A tough audience to scare. They will put some shivers in your livers. (laughs) Okay. All right. The the challenge has been laid. Uh, Kane, welcome to to our show and the Hillbilly Horror Stories. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, so Kane, let's let's tell the Halloween audience uh, a little bit about uh, your paranormal experiences. Alrighty, so I live in Arizona, and all of my experiences have taken place in Arizona, a place of magic and mystery, essentially, the desert of unknown. Do you work for the Chamber of Commerce in Arizona? Because that certainly sounds like a like a promo. <laughs> no, but I should be getting paid for this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so tell us about your, your first experience. So the first thing I ever saw that was a spooky ghost was I was driving home and I was my first job as an electrician. And I was driving home from Sarita, which is like a town over. So you got to drive down the highway and it's towards Mexico. So it's in kilometer per hour and you turn off and you go down like an old school highway. That's just two lanes, but you could still go 70 on it. And then you cut across the desert to come back to where I live. And I'm driving down the road, and I see something white on the edge of the road, and it runs straight up in front of me. And if it was actually there, I would have hit it. And so I didn't hit anything, and I was tired, so I just kept going. But when I thought about what I just saw, it looked like either almost like a Slenderman, but that's not real because he would have been a naked Slenderman, which wouldn't even been a Slenderman anymore. But it looked like a Wendigo essentially, but it wasn't there. I would have hit it if it was there. And then I just kept going and I went on straight home. Well, you're more of a man than me and Jason. I can say that because if I had seen something white run across the road and I hit it, I'm not sure I could have just kept on dry, kept on driving. That's, that's the more brave thing to do. You don't get out. If you just hit a monster. No, okay. you don't. Okay. You're like, oh, did I just hit the dog man? Let me, let me help him out. <laughs> oh, okay. Calm down, well, dog man. I didn't mean to hit you. Now, come on now. Don't bite yeah, me. Come on. We can be civil about this. <laughs> well, okay. So um, so you lived through that one because uh, that's, that's a, I mean, that's a scary situation to think that you're going to hit something and then not to hit anything. And yeah, even, I even like braced, you know, how, when you think something bad's going to happen in the car, you kind of like tense up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I did that and there was nothing. So I was like, Oh, 
Well, there, there went a bunch of adrenaline. I'll never get back. So I guess I'll go home. All right. So, so tell us about your next uh, encounter. And I was at my second job. I was working at Denny's and I was there late at night. I was past when I was supposed to be there and I was out mopping and it was just me and the manager there and he's in his office and I'm out mopping the floor. And I look up and I see half a person, no legs from the torso up and they're wearing like a red poofy pirate shirt. It's a tunic, I guess, but I don't think it's called a tunic. I think it's called something else. And he just kind of floats from left to right into the kitchen. I look, there's nothing. No one else is there to confirm, but that's all I saw. He did. He never looked at me. Nothing. It was just no sound. Just half a person floated from left to right. And that just was a normal day in Arizona. <laughs> that's fascinating. And you, and you didn't see a, you didn't see a face or anything with that. You just uh, saw the, he was too see through to see his face. I couldn't see it. So I, I, Either there was even you, a reflection in the in the glass behind him. I could see his reflection because the how the light was. So it was there. Really? So either either that Denny's used to be a Jolly Pirate Donut, or there is is some sort of maybe a conquistador or something from four or five hundred years ago. Maybe died on that spot. I mean. Uh, why is the craziest thing I've ever heard of something that looks like a pirate in Arizona that, yeah, it makes you know, no sense if, that, I, or it's like a theater ghost. Yeah. Yeah. That would be very interesting to see if, uh, if maybe the side of that Denny's was, uh, on an old, old, uh, you know, theater. Yeah. And, I'd have to look it up. I was way before my time. If it was before any of my parents time, probably. Yeah, well, that'd be very interesting. Yeah, that and and that just so you didn't think of telling anybody there, the the manager or anybody else that was closing, huh? You just no. Okay. All right. Well, look, when you work at a Denny's and you're a dishwasher, you're not there to tell people what you saw. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Now we listen. I think that might get you into a job with organized crime. That sounds sort of like uh, a prerequisite that you. <laughs> so, right. so share so share this last story that we've heard with with the uh, with the audience here because I think this one is uh, this one is the the best of all three. So I think it was in August because it was two months ago. So yeah, pretty much. Wait. Yeah, it was like the beginning of August, and I was sleeping, and I hear an awful sound, and I'm like, what is that sound? So I I wake up, and I look at my phone, and it's exactly 3 a.m. when I look at my phone, and then I hear it again, and I'm like, oh, it's my cat. She's like, hurt or something's wrong. So I sit up, and I can't – I can see her, like her – because she's a black cat, and I can just see her, like, outline, and I turn my phone on, like the flashlight, and I can see her, and she's being smashed. Like she's being squished. Her legs are like spread out and stuff. And I can see dark, almost see through legs on top of her, pushing her down. So I jump off my bed, and the legs aren't there anymore. And I reach down to touch her. And as soon as I touched her, she got up and walked away like a normal cat, like nothing ever happened. So I eventually go to bed, and it was like, Two hours later, I'm able to fall asleep, and I fall asleep, and the next morning I wake up for work and stuff, and I see my cat, and she's limping. So it did actually happen, and it wasn't just a dream I had. So 
what the what the audience that's listening to you tell these stories does not know that we know is that you have a photographic memory. Indeed. And so that each one of these events that you're describing, you can take yourself back to the very minute that it happened. And yeah. That's, that's as soon you, as I think of these things, I see them as if it's happening right now. I can see it in my eyes, essentially. So, so there's no mistaken that you saw a pair of what seemed to be legs smashing your cat. Yeah. Like it's I don't right know. Now. Like it's happening at this. I don't second. know. I'm not sure what's scarier: the fact that you saw that, or the fact that you can replay it in your mind over and over and over again. Um, that uh, that's that's the scary. That's almost the scary thing to me is that you can't escape it like a lot of people can have an experience and be done with it and just kind of remember it but you are able to relive these experiences over and over again as if they just happened time is a flat circle and whatnot so yeah well kane i i I appreciate you sharing these uh ghost stories with us for the hillbilly horror stories halloween special and uh, i hope all the listeners enjoyed hearing them as much as we did. And if you'd like to hear more of uh, more of Kane and some of his other stories, come to the From the Shadows podcast. Uh, we're on available on any podcatcher, uh, and you can find Kane's episode where he shared a lot of other paranormal experiences. And while you're there, check out some of our other episodes. But not until you finish this Hillbilly Horror Stories Halloween special, because. It's just to be honest, it's probably way better than anything we've done. So, so we appreciate you joining, you spending some time with us. Thank you, Kane. Thank you, Jason, for for hanging out. You know, for ten minutes with us. It was my pleasure. <laughs> and thank you, and thank you, Jerry and Tracy at Hillbilly Horror Stories. You guys are the best. And happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween, Jerry. And uh, love listening to your program, buddy. Buddy, we're Robots Fries Podcast. We are um, part of the uh, Podbelly Podcast Network, which um, Hillbilly Horror Stories is also part of. And they've asked us to uh, to do a little bit of a what do you call it? Like a, a segment for sort of a, their uh, a small little uh, segment for ten minutes, is it? Ha- Halloween um, story Halloween sort of thing. Yeah, that's segment sort of for this for this. Halloween special that they Halloween have made us very nicely made us part of. So yeah. we three piece. I'm Tom and I'm Rob. And I'm Hannah. And that's Hannah in the corner. We cover an array of topics, kind of like from, I don't know, interesting historical people and events, 
go for conspiracies, true crime, serial killers, which is always a crowd favourite. Yeah, serial killers is the one. They, that definitely, it's, it's one of my it's, favourites. It's, it's, it's definitely a, a crowd favourite among our uh, listeners. People just love a good stabbing. Uh, <laughs> we go to like UFOs, natural disasters, scandals, and we do like science based topics sometimes, like black holes, which is a bit of a mind blower. A Galaxies, yeah. And sometimes we swear. So, uh, so yeah. We'll try and keep the uh, <coughs> the shits to a minimum because I think something like 40,000 people will be listening to this. So oh, that's right then. Can't really drop too many F-bombs. <coughs> Only that many? No, it's tiny, mate, tiny. Because <laughs> yeah. so it's Halloween, I thought we'd go down like a ghost route, but because right. this is like, um, we don't really, it's not something we cover, is it, ghosts? No, we, we do, but we, not much. Not do we? much. I think we did Poltergeist the other oh, yeah. week, didn't we? But not. it's not a regular occurrence for us to do. The, uh, spooky apparitions. The spooky apparitions. What's your thoughts on ghosts, Rob? Go on. Uh, my my opinion in it's all bullshit, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah, Rob is, Rob is like the bullshit button of the uh, the ghost stories. I, I just yeah, I just think it's all all rubbish. What you, what you, no, no, no truth in it whatsoever. Like even it only takes one person to have an actual encounter, and then it's real. Well, it's one of those things you've you kind of got to be there for it to yeah, be real. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's bullshit in my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my that's my thinking on it. Is it, it? I'm very much one of a sort of person that um, if I don't see it, I don't really believe it. So I'd, I've never had an an encounter of such of my own. So I, I don't really feel. Although that that whole like poltergeist thing that happened the other week in, oh, this, yeah, yeah. in our podcast room here was so a bit ju- weird. Just for the uh, the people listening, we did a. Um, one on Poltergeist, sorry, and we were talking about Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Yeah. And we mentioned uh, <laughs> <laughs> we mentioned how, like, a, like a typical trait of a Poltergeist is books and shit being thrown around the room. And we mentioned Nostradamus, which is obviously the, the, the ancient the prophecy ba- the, geezer. The manager's basically put any, like, sort of theory <laughs> just out. Put, just put so many theories down that maybe a few came through, yeah, true, yeah. yeah. And then after the podcast, in the middle of the night, a book flew off the shelf and a pot smashed. And it happened to be, the book that landed on the floor was the, a Nostradamus. Armour's book and we were like and also the, the the pot like it it flung out and smashed right yeah. like a good i don't know two or three meters away from the shelf it means nothing i would so. like i'd like ghosts to be real be class wouldn't it it would be great i'd like to have some glasses where like like if everyone who's died when you put the glasses on you see the everyone I see around people. you see imagine you're sitting in here in this room here and you put these glasses on would there be a dead person well, walking by if every person that ever died yeah. was a ghost Goes everywhere yeah, constantly. Just go, just be, oh, <laughs> carnage, wouldn't <laughs> it? It would be. So instead of uh, talking about ghosts, we come from like a uh, another angle, and we're going to talk about. Um, it's like a theory called the stone tape theory, which might it's kind of like an explanation to on the side of ghosts being real. It sounds quite sciencey, the, right, the, okay. the stone tape theory, but it, I don't think it's grounded in science. It's kind of like seems like more of a guess than a theory is there what's is there any reason why it's <clears throat> called stone tape yes. well right, the okay. the idea is that um specific types of rock namely um, rocks containing high levels of crystalline structures right. like granite quartz or limestone are somehow able to record or capture emotional or traumatic events from the past in the the very fabric of the building like in the granite floors mm. kind of like how a magnetic tape records data like, you know, sound and visuals, old school mm. VHS tapes. Mm. And like, you know, like quartz is used in, in watches to keep 
to keep time, which yeah, is, yeah. again, a uh, crystalline rock, uh, because apparently quartz vibrates uh, precisely 32,768 times per second when an electrical current is applied to it. So maybe the crystalline structures in these types of stones are doing something similar under certain conditions. Oh, okay. What's so your if thoughts? If there's like a storm coming or something, it's... Yes. Or like a thunderstorm. So predi- they're it's predicting... Because of vibrations. It's not predicting. It's somehow recording. It's somehow recording like how you, when you, you know, like old school VHS tapes or like tapes that you put in your, you know, cassette tapes. Yeah. It's like that. It's, it's kind like of like, it's, it's like a, a, a voice fossilization. Yeah, yeah. Like, in a way. Yeah, yeah, like absorbing sound. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. Like Stone Tape Theory fans, which also sounds like a band, doesn't it? it does. Stone Tape Theory. It does, yeah, yeah. They're going to see him at like a... Welcome, <laughs> Stone Tape Theory. <laughs> they also point, like the proponents of this theory point out that a lot of ghost sightings occur in electrical storms. You know, you hear that like it was the dark night and the thunder was banging yeah, yeah. or whatever. And like maybe that's the power source um, like you know, the battery in the watch analogy—it's um, like a natural static or an electrical charge is, is is generated in the atmosphere, which is causing the rock to play back like a scary movie imprinted on you know inside the rock itself. Of like, I guess like, you know, some creepy kid standing mm. on the in the hall screaming yeah, yeah. and crying, but it's probably not actually that scary. It might just be like a kid who's been told to go to bed by his mum and dad in 1592, but because it looks like an apparition, it's terrifying to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It might have just been something imprinted in the rock so like potentially what you're actually seeing when you see a ghost is you're witnessing a, a geological hologram wow. so but from from what the stone of the place that you're in yes. or so like say for like here in england we have like some really old pubs right and yeah, they yeah. tend to be quite some of them supposedly quite haunted because you know because there's such so many old things have happened Old things. Yeah. So many things have happened over the years. The, the pubs were so made before ghosts. That's how. That's how old these pubs <laughs> yeah, exactly, are. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so what you're saying that 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 when you see an apparition, because yes. a lot of I've actually heard people say it to me. You know, having worked in various pubs and bars that in old buildings where they've said, oh, they've experienced something within that building. Yeah. Sounds or visual, you know, visual references to something that's in the basement or in in whatever the cellars so that's coming from potentially the rocks it's coming from the the, rocks but it was actually an event it was an event that under the 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 very specific conditions was able to be recorded in these rocks which have got high crystalline so then do you need specific conditions in order to to have the apparition happen yeah 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 again thunderstorms right so but what happens when people say, oh, it wasn't a thunderstorm when well, I saw it? Exactly. That's because, because um, <laughs> that, that was, I thought that I was like, well, well, come on then. How can you see it like in the middle of the summer, blue skies, whatever? Yeah, yeah. That's because some people are sensitive and they pick up on the subtle electrical fields that recorded these events. So like, you know, you see them dudes on the paranormal programs and they go, I can feel something. I can, I can feel, feel it. It's all yeah. bollocks. You can't feel yeah. something. Mate. What people was that? Yeah. <laughs> what was that? Is it, the time? Oh, there's an orb. No, it's just a bit dust. It's a speck of dust, dust mate. It's a speck of dust to go in front of your camera. Yeah. Yeah. Like you've got a, you've got a big light. You're in a dark room. You've got a big old light shining at your camera. Of course, the speck of dust is going to, going to get picked up. So I was like, is there any examples of of um, of stone tape theory? I mean, I did hear some some like it was some uh, politician, some member of parliament saying that he he believed in ghosts, but you you don't interact with them because he would he would you regularly see an old woman 
moving around the, the attic in his giant stately home, but he'd only see her from the waist up because back in the day the when this woman, because I traced yeah. her back through history, the floors are lower, whatever, so she's yeah, moving. Yeah. And, she'd pl- and he'd hear her playing on a piano that wasn't there and he'd stand there and he'd say, who are you? But she'd never respond and never like even acknowledge he was there. And he was like, because it's because you're watching it. You're watching, some, not, you you're watching a recording from the past. You're yeah. not actually yeah. seeing something that has stayed behind it's after not someone death. coming to get so, you so technically yeah, yeah. it's not a ghost because it's not yeah. thinking consciously i suppose at the yeah, time it's, it's a recording it's just of, a record it's like watching it on a tape it's a, or it's a moment of time hence, yeah. the to- hence stone tape mm-hmm. yeah cool so there are there aren't really any examples but there is this thing called archaeoacoustic which is like um it's a study of sat you know like you'll see like a massive ancient structure and some lad will go into the corner he'll go hello and whisper and like it can be heard like 300 meters away yeah. oh yeah. isn't there a Wait, isn't there a corner like that in the um, in the uh, Grand Central? Grand Central, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. So, so, like you go in a corner, and the acoustics of the building, you can whisper in one corner, and you you can hear it like over the other side, like a good few hundred yards away. Yeah. It's cool, that isn't it? So it's like that, but um, but th- there's also like a branch of that that I wouldn't say it's a branch. But some boffins in in like Oxford University or some shit. They they did like um, a scan of uh, a laser scan of this clay pot which was made in, I think it was 1552, on one of those, you know, the revolving pottery tables that spin yeah, around yeah. and you put your hands on it like Patrick Swayze from Ghost. And the thought was, could, from Ghost, huh? could like that, yeah, exactly, could that soft, almost liquid clay pot spinning on that potter's table, like a record going round and round, could it have recorded oh, right, okay. any sound waves hitting happening. it? Because when you speak, it's just when, pressure waves yeah. moving out. So um, like an old school record, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, so mm. someone who's spinning a pot um, was playing the radio in the background. Potentially, Is, yes. you could pick up because there's sound waves those coming off. Sound it. waves, well, yeah, because it's, yeah, it's, it's going to leave some sort of indent, even if it's minute, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's 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 on like a well pottery, yeah, yeah. It's on clay. So, so they did this uh, like um, sciencey, lasery, tricky thingy on this pot, and apparently you can hear a bloke playing a violin in the background from 1592. Wow! And whoever it was, from a pot. shit, because it sounded terrible. It just sounds like squeaking. Yeah, but, to may- me. but maybe it's. Not shit. It's maybe it was just that the pot didn't pick up the yeah, sound I, waves very well. I also heard that that's a load of bollocks. Yeah. So it could be fake. Could be hoax. Yeah. Could be misunderstanding. To be fair, it's more believable though than like you know, sort of spirits stuck in between two worlds or whatever you think ghosts might be. Yeah, it is. It, it's it it has like a root. You know, like you say, you, you can record sound and visuals into tape, but you can't. Uh, you know, so rock, yeah, of course, and other materials like trees and stuff and woods. Like why, why not? not? Hey? Natural materials. So that's a little taster of us. If yeah. you're interested in Robots Wise podcast, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, we're slightly over our 10 minute mark by a minute and a half. So what? Whatever, oh, man. Sorry, mate. Yeah, See you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
Hillbilly Horror Stories Halloween Spectacular. And you asked me to share a story from our podcast, Jim Harold's Campfire. So I wanted to share one that would get people thinking because I kind of like offbeat stories. Those are my favorite. I call them head scratchers. Ones that don't fit in a particular category per se, but ones that just make you go, hmm. And this one made me and a lot of people in the campfire community go, hmm. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope after you listen, you'll go, hmm, what was that all about? Thank you so yeah. much for sharing this story with us. I was kind of like, whoa, <laughs> when I read it. So yeah. tell us tell us what happened. It's, it's a head scratcher. Okay. So this took place in back in about 2006, 2007. So my son at the time was probably two, two and a half, three. I can't remember exactly when, but he was at that stage, you know, where he was just starting to talk and, um, and he was at that stage, you know, where you can have adult conversations around the little kids and they don't really know what you're talking about. Right. So this will be good to know later on in the story. So just a little background at this time in my life, I had a corporate job. I was traveling all the time and um, I live in Austin. So you're forever connecting through Dallas to get back home. And so I would always arrive home late at night. And so I'd have to drive home late at night. Well, um, on the way home, my guilty little pleasure was listening to Coast to Coast, Mm -hmm. George Norrie. Sure. And um, so it scared me to death because at the time I was a new mom, anything scary, anything was just, it really scared me. And I would be up at night if I listened to it, but I just was so intrigued by it. And that was the only time I had had to watch it. So this one particular night I was driving home and George was talking about reptilian people. And I had never heard of this before. Um, of course, after that night, I Googled it and did all kinds of research. And, you know, I mean, it, he was presenting some pretty good, compelling evidence that, you know, they're out there. And, you know, he was claiming that there were famous people and that and politicians that were actually reptilian and that people had witnessed them changing their form and that they could shape shift and, you know, and there were eye account witnesses that were saying this. And so I was, you know, hmm, taken aback a little bit. So that night didn't get much sleep, Um, went to work the next day, didn't have to travel. So that night, and this is where our story gets good. Mm -hmm. um, My husband and I, and my son at the time, um, were having dinner at the dinner table. And so he, I started telling my husband about this, what I heard from George about these reptilian people. And, and, you know, like I said, my son at this time was, you know, at that age where we could have these kind of conversations. And I didn't think he really knew what we were talking about. Yeah, he was only just a, he was like a toddler, wasn't he? Or He was a toddler. Like he was sitting there and, you know, I, I think he was on his little booster stool, you know, just eating his peas and carrots. And, you know, he really wasn't engaging in our conversation whatsoever. Right. So I was like, okay. So, and my husband, I have to tell you, huge, huge skeptic. Right. And so he was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is ridiculous. And, and, um, so he, he was, um, he was saying like, okay, well, if there are reptilian people and they've been here, because George was claiming they've been around, you know, for a very, very long time. Why haven't they gone ahead and taken over our world? Or why haven't they shown themselves to us? Because obviously, you know, they've been around for a while. And all of a sudden, my son, 
who can barely form words, he looks straight at us and says, people not ready yet. (laughs) And it stopped us in our tracks. And we look at him and we were like, what do you mean people not ready yet? And he just went back to eating and did not say another word about it. We tried to probe him later, you know, like with questions about what, what did you mean by that? Like, how did, and he never acknowledged it, anything. And so I have no idea why he would say that. And it was just really, really spooky. Yeah. (laughs) I I, got to say, uh, when you emailed in the story. It's one of those stories where, oh, gosh, I hope she makes it on the show because and I want to have everybody come on the show. But they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're remarkable stories that you go, oh, gosh, I hope nothing goes wrong with the equipment or I hope they don't end up having an appointment <laughs> or whatever the case may be. I hope we got to get this on tape. I guess I'm dating myself, but tape anyway, <laughs> uh, digital tape. But the thing yes. is, two year old, you're talking about reptilians. Why have they not revealed themselves and out of the mouths of babes, people not ready yet. And and I got to say, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I'm we've done shows on the idea of reptilians. I personally am skeptical of it. I don't yeah. think they're lizard yeah. people running around. Exactly. But the thing I love about the campfire, even if it's something you're skeptical about, you'll hear a story and I'll make you go. Hmm. And then, hmm. And and then, then scratch your head. <laughs> right. And I always scratch my head. Like, why would he say that? You know, why does he, you know, and I've always believed that children are very connected when they're young sure. to other realms. Um, and, um, you know, so I don't, I don't know how he would have known to say that. And was it in his own voice? It wasn't like a people not ready. Oh, yeah, no. (laughs) It was in his cute little two-year-old voice. And that's what made it even kind of cuter and scarier, actually. Yeah, it would make it scarier. (laughs) If it were some guttural Satan voice, it wouldn't... (laughs) Uh, yeah that we would have gotten some sage and a priest and all that (laughs) stuff um but it's really funny because now um anything that happens in our family that is supernatural spooky you know just unexplained our catchphrase is people People not not ready ready yet yet. (laughs) and and you were telling me off air that your son he's almost all grown up now and and, uh, a pretty uh, hardcore skeptic he is. So uh, he's 15 now, just about to turn 16. And it's really funny that he has turned into the biggest skeptic of anything uh, supernatural. So, you know, I had an energy healer out to the house. There were some ghosts or spirits that are in our house. They're not malevolent or anything. And she did some energy healing, like with some magnets on him. And and then we tried to bring Sage in. He's like, get that hoogie boogie out of here. <laughs> I don't believe in any of that. And he just, I mean, and it's just so funny that he would, you know, after he said that at two, three years old, that now he is just like, he's a very um, scientific kid, right? That can't be explained by science or rational explanation. He's not going to believe in it. So Neil deGrasse Tyson would be proud. <laughs> he is a big fan of, of his. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mary, thank you so much for giving us an instant campfire classic. What a great story. People not ready yet. The, 
the title of today's show, but hopefully people are ready for the campfire and thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for letting me tell my story. guys welcome back to the hillbilly horror stories halloween special this is the tragedy of cinema podcast i'm the host jimbo and i'm joined today by one of my co-hosts kyle zaner kyle zaner um we're glad to be back again for our third year uh this year the first year we did halloween uh the second year we did the night of the living dead the original so today we thought we'd bring another classic horror movie to you which is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. Kyle, take it away. All right. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released in 1974. R-rated form, of course, because this is a good old-fashioned horror movie. Um, budget was $300,000 in 1974, which would be worth $1.67 million today. The cast includes... Uh, um, the movie is directed by director Toby Hooper. And the cast includes Marilyn Burns playing the titular, uh, the um, main character Sally, and um, Gunnar Hagen playing Leatherface. And this was the uh, film for all the horror nuts out there. Right. So um, what we do on our podcast is we give a little bit of uh, information about the director and all the cast and all that. Then we dive into some fun facts about the film that you may not know. So, uh, according to uh, John Lorquette, who did the opening monologue of this movie, his payment for doing this opening narration was what, Kyle? What was it? Uh, marijuana joint. <laughs> that is right. right. Um, <laughs> Marilyn Burns, also, who was uh, chased by Leatherface through the undergrowth, actually cut herself on the branches quite badly. So, she lost a lot of blood, and her body, uh, the blood on her clothes is real. Definitely has a lot of guerrilla filmmaking stuff going <laughs> right. on, yeah. Uh, the soundtrack of this movie actually contains no musical instrument. It has a few uh, that they had rights for that were copyrighted so they could use it. Mm. Uh, but it's actually sounds that animals would hear inside of a slaughterhouse. Contributes to that subdued tone they have for the entire movie, too. Right. Yeah. Um, due to the low budget, Gunnar Hansen had only one shirt to wear as Leatherface. The shirt had been dyed so it could be not be washed. Hanson had to wear it for four straight weeks of filming Ooh. in the hot and humid Texas summer. <laughs> By the end of the shoot, no one wanted to stand near Hanson or sit next to him during breaks to eat lunch because his clothing smelled so bad. Oh, God. It's kind of how I feel sitting next to Kyle most of the days we record. I understand. I can be a little bit ranty sometimes. I try not to be. I take showers. After the podcast, though. <laughs> Once a month. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Leatherface's teeth were uh, pr- uh, prosthetics made especially for Gunnar Hansen by his own dentist. So Philip cool, too. <laughs> uh, most of the actors never actually met Gunnar Hansen, let alone seen, seen him in costume before their first, and sometimes their last, encounter with him on the screen. One time. So some of the horror you see on their fa- and fear that you see on their faces is actually yep. real. Um, also... Despite the title of the movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, only one person is actually killed by a chainsaw in this movie. 
Well, you know, it's all about Chainsaw, though. It's still like right. it's a central character in that movie. <laughs> uh, this was the actually the biggest grossing independent film until Halloween in 1978, four years after this movie. Grossed over $30 million. That's right. Uh, Terry McMinn was paid just $700 for her appearance in this film. Gunnar Hansen earned $100 more. <laughs> Uh, the longest that Terry McMinn could comfortably hang on the meat hook was just one minute. Not surprised. Yeah. It may work uh, out. <laughs> uh, Gunnar Hansen notes that the first time he appeared on camera and how nervous he was before doing the shot, even though it was a rubber hammer, he uh, struck actor William Vell very hard over the head, then proceeded to roughly throw him headfirst against the wall behind him. <laughs> Do it for real. <laughs> uh, Gunnar Hansen could rarely see in the leather face mask. He remembers the first take when he is carrying Terry McMahon and knocking himself out cold after hitting the door frame through the workshop. Ooh, Toby Hover Junction made a great sound effect. <laughs> 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 um, on the commentary with a lot of the cast members, um, they all agree on how bad the smell was during the dinner scene. Uh, the food, which was a lot of it was meat products, had been sitting out for days in the Texas heat. Hansen, who clearly got the worst of it all, was told he could only take his mask off during 15-minute breaks or longer. But every break they took was only ever announced for five-minute breaks. Oh he never gosh. got to take the mask off while filming. So he was probably stuck in that mask for pretty much the I'd whole I'd become the killer at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all through production, Gunnar Hansen would ask Toby Hooper how he was going to get the shot of Leatherface getting hit in the head with a wrench and then slicing it into his own leg with a chainsaw. Hooper would respond that they would eventually figure it out since it was one of the last shots of the movie. Yeah. Uh, Hansen said, I realized what he meant. If you're killed, we've got the movie in the can. <laughs> so for the shot, Hansen had a metal plate on his leg, but the heat of the chainsaw hitting it caused him to think he had been directly hit. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Terrifying. Uh, Paul Pertain and Marilyn Burns didn't like each other, and much of their bickering in this film is genuine. Well, I imagine they were miserable the entire time filming it, too. So, of course, right. you hate everyone at that point. So, <laughs> so that's just a little tidbit of what we do on the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. Um, if you liked what you heard, we will be releasing our first... Uh, or not our first, but the full-length version of this movie on our podcast on Halloween also. It'll be a good one. Right. So we would just like to say a special thank you to Jerry and Tracy Pauly. Uh, thanks for having us again once once again. Uh, thanks for it. being great people. Thanks for being great friends. And keep up the good work that you do. We, we love, love you guys. guys. Right. So, Kyle, I think this episode's coming to a close. And that's a wrap. And cut. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Jacob from the Art and Jacob Do America podcast, and I'm here today to tell you the story about 
my haunted house that had to be exercised twice. Now, if you want the full story, I'm going to give you a very abridged version of this story for time's sake. Head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts and look up our podcast, Art and Jacob Do America, where pretty much every October I tell this story. So check that out. But here we go. Back in 1991, my mom was trying to buy a house. Try to, you know, do the do the good American thing by being a homeowner. and uh, But at the same time, she wanted to keep me in the same school district. Uh, but at the same time, my mom was a single mom. She didn't have a lot of money, so her choices were very limited at this time. So we ended up buying this house across the street from a cemetery, uh, very dilapidated and just, just to- very run down. Just picture the house from it, if you will. It kind of looked similar to that. Uh, but anyways, took us about a month or two to get the house into living condition. Uh, friends, neighbors, relatives, you know, would come by every night to help us paint or cut the grass, if you will. Uh, but every day we would find out a little bit more about the former residents of the home. Uh, as it turns out, they were actually drug addicts. Uh, I guess they were addicted to heroin. And, you know, we would find little syringes and glass pipes and, you know, weird things, if you will. And there was actually a shed in the backyard, which we'll get into a little bit later, uh, that was completely locked that we couldn't get into until about a couple years later. Uh, But anyways, as the abridged story goes, our first night in the home, uh, everybody, you know, all the, you know, helpers that helped us move in, you know, had gone home for the night. My mom was at the the edge of our front lawn talking to one of the neighbors, uh, thanking them for their help getting us into the house. And, you know, I was inside of the house by myself, locked door, and, you know, taking a bath for the night because we were getting ready, you know, for bed. And um, as I'm getting out of the tub, I hear this voice, a man's voice, say, Jacob. Now, it wasn't spooky or scary or anything. It just sounds like somebody was like, hey, trying to get my attention. Like, hey, keep that towel around your little pee-pee. We don't want to see your seven-year-old little pee-pee right now. And so I, I was like, oh, Hello? And I thought I was alone by myself, so at first it didn't scare me. Then I started to walk around and realize that there was nobody in this house. Okay. So I run out the front door. I find my mom, and she's kind of pissed off. She's like, what are you doing out here? You know, it's, it's, mid, it's middle of October, and you're out here butt-ass, wet-ass naked and stuff. I'm trying to thank the neighbor over here. I don't need you swinging your pee-pee around, you know, you know freaking out the neighbors and whatnot. And so I told her, Mom, somebody's in the house. Somebody just called my name. She goes, that's impossible. There's nobody there. And so my mom walks me into the house. We walk through the house. And again, yeah, there's nobody there. So she says, you know what? Stop telling stories. I know you missed the old house, but I need you to get to bed. So I go to bed that night. You know, I'm all tucked in in my Teddy Rocksman sheets or whatever, Ninja Turtles. I don't know what I have at the time. But as soon as the sun goes down, and I'm in bed, and everything is pitch black. My door is closed. All of a sudden, I see my door open oh so slowly. And I'm thinking in my head, this is probably my mom, you know, coming to chastise me for making <laughs> making a scene earlier. But it's not. This black silhouette slowly starts to walk into my room. And if anybody remembers The Undertaker from, you know, wrestling how he walked to the ring. It was a very slow, gaunt walk like that, where he just slowly walked across my room, then proceeded to climb on this treasure chest that was at the foot of my bed, 
sits down Indian style in front of my bed and just watches me the entire night. Now, some people say that, oh, you probably just experienced sleep paralysis, but I'll tell you this, I didn't fall asleep at all that night. And I was very much able to move because every once in a while I'd have to pick up my blanket and put it across me like a shield, if you will. So I was very much able to move. I tried not to move because I was freaked out by this uh, this entity that almost telepathically was telling me, don't move, I need to see who you are. And so he watched me, and I watched it, and we just sat there for the entire night until sun came up, and he slowly started to dissipate into the air, kind of like the end of um, Infinity Wars of uh, Avengers, very much similar to that. And so as soon as the, the figure dissipates away, I run into my mom's room and my mom was like, oh my God, where were you all night? I was trying to scream out to you, but not, my voice couldn't scream anything out. And I was like, I, I don't know, mom. I, I, I was being watched by this dark shadowy figure. She was like, oh my God, all night I thought you were throwing nails or something at my headboard. And I tried to scream at you, but nothing would come out. And she goes, as soon as I realized that you weren't in the room and the door was shut, I didn't go to sleep at all last night. She goes, I tried not to move because something was throwing these nails at my headboard. Now, you have to realize my mom at this time, it's the early 90s, she has a waterbed. And she was seeing these nails and these thumbtacks flying on her headbed. And she said, if I would have moved, I would have punctured the bed. And I don't know, I would have drowned. I don't know what would have happened. Or she didn't want to make a mess. My mom was a neat freak, so that's probably why she didn't want to move. But she was scared shitless. She Something was in her room. And throwing nails at her headboard. That was a very crazy thing that was going on. So she said, you know what? we got a long day ahead of us. I don't know. That was the weirdest shit I ever went through. Let's get ready for the day. So my mom's at the table. She's filling out change of address forms or whatever she's doing, if you will, when you buy a new house. And I'm getting ready for school. I'm tying my shoes or doing something. Then all of a sudden, we hear three knocks within the wall. Not outside at the front door, but within the wall of our house, just. And we, my mom and I, we look at each other and we're like, what the hell was that? And then we hear it again. Now, there was nobody at the front door, nobody at the back door, nobody at any of the windows or anything, but it was it, within the wall that separated the living room that we were in and one of the bedrooms. And then it did it one more time, and then it stopped. Just So my mom says, that's it. Fuck this. We're calling the priest. So my mom calls the priest of this church that we were going, at, going to at this time. She tells uh, him the experience that I went through and that she went through. And then she proceeds to go pale face. And she goes, we got to do what? And so my mom tells me, she says, well, we looks like we're not spending another night in here because the priest... And the church is going to perform an exorcism on the home. So, again, just to abridge this story a little bit further, fast forward that night. Uh, a priest and a bunch of other, you know, underling priests, if you will, show up full garb, you know, swinging the little smoke things. I don't know what those things are called. Uh, come in with gallons of holy water. And, you know, you can just hear them, you know, all through the house. We're, we're in across the street at one of our neighbor's houses. Um, you know, I believe I'm in the back of my dad's truck. And um, 
I just hear, in the name of Jesus, Satan, get out of this house. And then you just hear, like, almost kind of like Jurassic Park sound, just coming out of the house. So this goes on for about half of the night. The priests come out, and they say, the house is clean. So we go to bed that night. We actually spend the night in that house, and uh, it was pretty peaceful for a very long time. Now, again, to abridge the story a little bit further, slowly but surely the whatever was in the house came back because you know my mom would have weird things that would happen to her like weird cuts like almost like claw marks on her legs and my mom had really bad varicose veins and so you know blood would squirt out if you will if whatnot we would find footprints on the ceiling like almost like somebody had ran through soot and ran across the ceiling Uh, We would hear weird noises like somebody was walking on, you know, the roof. We'd go outside. Nobody would be there. Like big, heavy things, too, like a cow almost was on top of the roof. Uh, We found my half Rottweiler, half German Shepherd dog tied up in the backyard to a tree. Lifted up. This is like almost a 200-pound dog. Lifted up and tied to a tree, almost five feet up in the air and tied to the tree with multiple leashes and ropes, which we did not own. Um and also, too, uh, weird coincidences like doors opening up, uh, weird shadowy figures coming in. So the the priests and whatnot, they had to do another exorcism again to the house. And as it turns out, to wrap up this story, the former residents of this home used to be Satan worshipers. And once when we shampooed the carpet, there was a perfect pentagram melted into the carpet from the candle wax. And now, mind you, they used to live across, our house was across the street from a cemetery, and the neighbor said that every night before we moved in, they would do their satanic rituals and walk across the cemetery and sacrifice stray dogs and cats. And in the backyard of this house, there was a murder shed where we found cages with dead animal skeletons and blood all over this uh, handmade shed and, yeah, pentagrams and all sorts of scary, scary stuff. So that's the abridged version of this story. Uh, 30 years later, uh, the house seems to be okay now, but it took about six or seven years of exorcisms and blessings to get the home just right again. But anyways, if you guys want to hear the full story of that, head on over to the Art and Jacob Do America podcast where I get into more detail about that story. But until then, happy Halloween. Hello, everybody. My name is Sarah Donatus, and even though I don't have a podcast of my own, I do a ton of work with Tim Mullins and the Triple H Media Productions. If you are a fan of his site, you definitely have heard my voice. I'm quite sure of it. Um, But I am so honored to be invited and included in such a lineup of amazing talent for this special Halloween production. And I want to thank Jerry and Tracy for including me in this very wonderful group and uh, to be a part of something I've enjoyed over the years and uh, am now honored to be a part of. I also want to take a quick moment to thank Jerry and Tracy for everything they do. Their 
feelings, their love and their support in the community they have completely uh, created from the ground up. What you do and who you support and the lives you've changed are nothing short of amazing. And I want to thank you. On top of that, I want to thank Tim Mullins for doing some editing for this particular uh, podcast uh, edition that I'm offering. And I want to thank our very own Ninja. Uh, Ninja plays an important role in this little um, show I'm going to do just now. And uh, listen in. See if you can hear the very um, well, well-known sounds of Ninja sleeping. All right. I hope you guys enjoy my little missive. It is called The Halloween Hollow. As Storm sat on her huge covered porch that surrounded her farmhouse, she reminisced about the very first time this place came into her life. Almost too easily, she found the property in the Smokies with a large piece of land, about 45 acres, two barns, a few outbuildings, a cute house with a killer wraparound porch, with a nice-sized family cemetery on a hill. The price was way too good, and she bought it. Sight unseen. Once there, Storm saw the house and buildings needed minor fixes, but other than that, she could totally move in. She learned that she was the first owner that not related to the original settlers. In the cemetery, most of the stones had the same last name written on the almost 100 graves. She found one grave outside of the cemetery gates, not well marked with only a first name, Jonathan. Hmm, kind of ostracized. Storm quickly updated all of the buildings on the property and created hiking trails through her wooded area. She and her dog lived alone, well, except for a few specters of times gone by. Robert was the first to show himself in the basement and is a good ghost for the most part and keeps to himself. Sarah, the woman of the home, is regularly seen going about her daily tasks of cooking and cleaning. She startles Storm once in a while, but if the old dog doesn't mind her, then Storm knows she is in good hands and that she's a good soul. Storm mused out loud while in her thoughts this morning that this really felt like home. The old German shepherd that she adopted stirred under her feet, snapping her out of her thoughts. Coffee finished. Now the work begins. The air was unseasonably warm this morning, this high up in the mountains. The trees had begun their yearly shed of leaves, and the collars were blinding. Soon snow will cover the grassy fields and the forests on her property. She packed up quite a few tools on her side-by-side to head into the woods to tackle one last project this season. On a warm spring day, months ago, a descendant of the original family came by. She was happy to see all of the work being done. Storm asked her about the history of the place, the family, and at the end asked about the ostracized headstone. The smile and the color ran from the visitor's face. She told Storm to leave that part of history where it was and look into it no further. In an effort to change the subject, Storm mentioned her project of cleaning up the top of the hill to add to her hiking trails. 
the visitor got upset and advised against it. As she left, she mumbled to Storm to leave it alone up there, that only bad things happened there. Months old, conversation forgotten. Storm drove up in her side-by-side, old dog chasing her for a bit, then, realizing its age, slowly walked back to the porch to sleep. She sped through the grassy fields and then into the dark woods. She thought to herself, the woods seemed darker than usual today. The one trail took a steep bank up to the top of the mountain. Her side-by-side made easy work of the trip, and soon she was pulling up to a very densely overgrown area. She set to work, and over the next couple hours, used every tool in her arsenal. The chainsaw was the best thing on much of it. At one point, she grabbed a handful of freshly cut brush, gave a pull, and gasped. There was a wall. Well, a corner, a corner of a log structure was exposed. She felt a cold, evil chill run up her spine. But now her curiosity got the best of her. Cutting feverishly, she lost track of time, but after what seemed like hours, she revealed a small log cabin with a rusty metal roof. There was a window on each side with eight panes of wavy glass in each one, and a door. Something told her not to open it. Perhaps it was the silence in the forest all of a sudden, like all the animals and bugs stopped at once. The door was held shut by a simple lift latch that was definitely hand-foraged. She pulled it up to see if the door would give, and it did. The ominous creaking of the old hinges made her stomach fly into her throat, and she could now hear her heart beating loudly, the deafening thumping adding to her fear. Once the door gave way, she stepped in and could see that the one-room cabin had been abandoned for years. The air extremely heavy, almost too heavy to breathe. The cobwebs were the only movement in the place, as the breeze from outside made them dance in the late day sunlight, now streaming through the windows. Wait. Storm realized that she closed the door behind her. Where is that breeze coming from? She told herself the chinking must be out between the logs, letting in the breeze, but knew that wasn't the truth. She cautiously continued, looking and walking around. From the door was an old coat rack, the old kind, with four legs standing on their own, with four upturned hooks about five feet tall. Then a pile of old cut logs still waiting to provide warmth, to a hunter, a rocking chair, small table, and another rocking chair along the side wall. There was a small dresser on the back wall and an old metal bed with the remains of a rotting straw-filled mattress in the far corner. Some shelves on the other side wall with a few dishes, a coffee kettle, and next to that 
an old wood-burning stove. No rugs, just rough sawn planks for a floor. The roof appears to still be doing its job, as the building was bone dry. Storm heard a noise from behind her. By this time, she had walked around and was by the wood-burning stove when she heard this odd creak. As she slowly turned, she saw the rocking chair farthest from the door, slowly rocking. Her heart leapt. She froze. The chair stopped moving. She took a deep breath, and the chair started moving again. Storm stepped closer to the door, thinking she could act natural and make her way out. This feeling, this presence seems much different than the specters in her home. This one felt mad, no, angry, almost deranged, and she had had the carnal fear any animal has as they are being hunted by an unseen predator just waiting for the right time to pounce. She feared turning her back to the unseen entity. She felt a need to keep an eye on the area in to ensure whatever it was didn't move. As she slowly stepped closer to the door, the chair rocked faster and faster. She took a deep breath as her lungs gave her great pain from not breathing. Finally, Close enough to the door to free the latch and run, a gust of cold air hit her like a ton of bricks, and she slammed against the wall, her breath being knocked out of her. She let out a scream the like she has never screamed before. She then felt hands, two large hands, grab either arm just above her elbow and throw her to the floor. She screamed again, knowing her cries would be heard by no one. She felt the same hands, then grab her ankles and pull her across the floor to the far end of the room by the bed. She knew it would attack again and felt that if it had enough strength to move her, perhaps she could fight back. She pulled her knees to her chest and put her feet so that they pointed to the ceiling. Sure enough, it attacked again, and this time she kicked with all her might and pushed the entity back, making it fall to the bed. She heard a male voice groan, then growl. She was getting to her feet when she felt those hands on her shoulders, spinning her around to face away from the entity. She fought to face it, for she felt there was more power in facing it head on. The entity put what felt like an arm around her waist and lifted her from the ground. She writhed and shook to get free, getting a good kick on what she thought was his shoe. He growled in anger. In a moment of clarity, she thought if he felt that, Perhaps a man's spirit would still be sensitive to other attacks. She made a fist and swung her lower body to the side, slamming her fist in the area of most sensitivity. It worked. The entity let out a huge roar of pain and dropped her on the floor. As she scrambled off the floor, he grabbed for her hair and pulled her back. She groaned and pleaded for freedom. She threw her elbow, hoping to hit something, and got him in what she believes was his eye. Her hair now free of his grasp, she would try to escape again. She jumped off the floor and ran with all her might to the door. She heard the entity coming toward her. She grabbed the coat rack and spun around, smacking the entity, then swung again, hitting it harder. It got silent. 
Another gust of cold wind knocked her against the wall. Then she fell to the floor after the impact. She began desperately crawling to the door, praying out loud that she would find her way to the door and to freedom from this attack. What felt like a boot kicked her in her side, causing her to roll and hit the rocking chair nearest the door. She suddenly found an overpowering strength and jumped to her feet. She leapt to the door and flung the latch up and pulled the door open. The door was pulled shut and she screamed, No! She reached for the door once more, this time pulling it wide open, leaping out of the cabin with the remaining energy she had left. The adrenaline was pumping, keeping her alive. Storm ran to her side by side and jumped in, starting it quickly and driving with a speed that she didn't know the machine could achieve. She drove straight to the main road, never looking back and down to the closest house where her dear friends and neighbors lived. Running to the house, flinging the door open, jumping in and slamming the door shut behind her. Storm just standing there in a haze of shock. The neighbors were startled at the sight before them. Storm was battered and bruised, her eyes bloodshot and swollen, her face badly bruised and adorned with tear streaks. Once in their home and safe, she collapsed on the floor. The next morning, she woke, unsure of where she was at first. The neighbors had dressed her wounds and gave her a place to sleep. The husband, Brad, went to Storm's home and brought the old dog to their house for the night to keep watch. Over coffee and a rhythmic snoring of her beloved pet, she told them of her harrowing experience wincing and crying at times as she remembered the terror she endured. Her friends marveled and told her she is lucky to be alive. Once she calmed down, the neighbors silently looked at one another, saying nothing. Storm pressed them for the reason for their reaction. They then told her of the legend of Jonathan. California's rugged and scenic northwestern corner is the beginning of the Great Pacific Northwest. Of the Great Pacific Northwest. A region of untamed and primitive beauty. And the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department has now joined efforts with Illegal the Arcata Police. Illegal growers living the off the ground. Humboldt Lightest County years. also has the highest Not rate of missing person cases. The epicenter of the American economy. There's a lot of evil here. A lot of evil. This is kind of murdery, and you're entering the Emerald Triangle. Wow, that was nuts. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to Kinda Murdery. Uh, I'm your host, Zevin Odelberg, and I'm here again because I just can't stay away from him with my good buddy, Niall Madden. How you doing today, Niall? I'm good. Again, thank you for listening to us here on Kinda Murdery, and there's really two parts to the show. 
We uh, tell historical stories that are kind of murdery, whether that's murder, robbery, what have you. Um, and then we also just tell some personal stories. Yeah, personal stories that make you want to murder us. Here we go. We are in Sausalito, a mm. very wealthy community known for, the, for its houseboat neighborhoods on Richardson's Bay across the Golden Gate Strait from San Francisco. So it's, uh, it's 1963 when the child of one Mrs. Holdred Gallagher, and just pause for a second, is there a better Halloween name than Mrs. Holdred Gallagher? Yeah. Uh, so Holdred's kid finds a human skull amid the bushes in their backyard. They're like, oh, sweet. That looks like a great Halloween decoration. Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, just totally unsurprised to find a human skull in their backyard. Right. Just immediately go to like, let's stick this on the porch to creep out the neighbors and take no further action. Right. Well, so that's why I said, always know the provenance of any severed head you use for a Halloween decoration because they had been displaying this skull year in and year out on All Hallows Eve for eight years Eight years, when one day a neighbor walks up to Mrs. Holdred Gallagher and says, uh, hey, Holdy, um, have you ever, have you ever told the police about this human skull that you have? Hmm. Yeah. To which she goes, no, maybe I should do that. Maybe you should mind your fucking business. <laughs> so she goes to the police and they say, oh, yeah, so your Halloween decoration is actually... The skull of a murdered man who was killed 40 years ago and died from a massive skull-crushing blow to the right side of his head. Mm. Happy Halloween. Speaking of Happy Halloween, I'm going to go ahead and tell you a Halloween story from my own childhood. Uh, I am eight years old. It is Halloween, my best friend I've known since he was two and a half, and we are going to go trick-or-treating together. And, and I, was, I was a total sheltered hippie kid. I lived in the middle of the woods, an hour from town, a mile from the nearest neighbor. I wasn't allowed to watch TV or, or, or movies, so I had no idea what kids in the late 80s were supposed to be into. So I had this great idea because I like to read fantasy novels. I said to my mom, I want to be a rainbow unicorn Elf. <laughs> so my mom's a hippie and she's like, well, that sounds awesome. Very progressive. She made me a paper mache mask that was a half face mask uh, with sort of cat eyes painted in a, a gradations of rainbow color with a golden unicorn horn on this it. This is child abuse. <laughs> and then I had log jaws that they dyed, tie-dyed rainbow colors. And I put on my rainbow-colored long johns and my unicorn elf mask. And I was like, I look fucking awesome. I look yeah. so awesome. And mm. then my buddy shows up. He also went with a chimera. But instead of unicorn elf, this son of a bitch went with... Ghostbusters Tiger. Fuck yeah. You say that now, but here I am in my rainbow unicorn elf outfit thinking I'm awesome. And in walks my buddy with a tiger mask. His long johns are tiger striped. And he has a fully like constructed cardboard um, 
Ghostbusters ghost shooting um, ray gun machine, whatever you call that, the like plasma rifle that the Ghostbusters carried. So, of course, he looks fucking rad. Yeah. And I immediately feel like such a douche in my rainbow elf costume that I like basically burst into tears. And so my dad, I don't know if he was ashamed or just felt bad for me. Let me tell you something. You probably needed a police escort around the schoolhouse, the 12-person schoolhouse. Yeah, no kidding. So he hustles me down to the garden and he's like, don't cry. Don't cry that you don't have a Ghostbusters plasma pack, son. Here is a... And he whips it out. Uh, I mean, the, the, the glow stick it is. I mean... And he cracks it, and he's like, here's a glow stick. And I was like, wow, that's better than the Ghostbusters proton pack. And of course, because we were little kids, my friend becomes jealous of the go- the glow stick, and he yeah. starts to cry. <laughs> wow. Jesus. So it was kind of a disaster. It was um, the battle past- of the pussies. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So... Past the, uh, fast forward a couple years, and has Zevin learned his lesson about what to dress like for Halloween? No, of course not. A couple years later, uh, it's probably the start of the Gulf War, so all us little boys are like super obsessed with, with guns and battle. But I decide I want to be a Renaissance court jester. So... <laughs> My mom, never to be one to, like, not put the work in, makes me this incredible, again, rainbow-colored with, like, segments, satin jester's outfit with the collar, uh, with the little triangles with bells on the end. I had the pointed elf shoes with bells on the ends. And I think I look awesome again. And I go to the school Halloween party, and every other boy in the school is dressed either as a ninja or a special forces soldier. And they've all got Nerf guns. And they say, hey, let's go play like run around in the dark and try to hide and shoot each other with Nerf guns. <laughs> well, how do you think that works out for the guy in the jester costume with bells on the ends of his pointed shoes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man, you've heard of the sad clown. I was the sad jester that night. Man, you know, speaking of Halloween, I, I'm just thinking back to some of my costumes. I remember going to a party in the hills and I was uh, John Mark Carr and I made Fitz go as John Benet Ramsey. Okay, that's 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 pretty murdery. Yeah, well, nobody really got the costume and I was wearing these khakis up to like my tits and I had this blue golf shirt billowing out because that's what he was wearing as they walked him through <laughs> a press conference doing a perp walk and he's like, I killed her. Is a very strange story. And by the way, just so you could picture this, Fitz, who's dressed as Jean Benet Ramsey, is With like a cigarette a, hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> is like a stocky black Irish linebacker, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the next year, I went back to the same party. I was like, I got to redeem myself, and I found this inflatable penis costume. So your your, your feet are the testicles, and there's a fan <laughs> system on the inside. And the fan system keeps it uh, billowing out, so it's Wait, like a, a fan system to keep your nuts dry. Is that what no, we're talking it's about? No, to keep it to keep the penis fully uh, uh, filled out, so to speak. So the head was like this giant head of a penis, and uh, the problem with it is that I, I remember um, it said no returns because everybody who bought this thing fucking returned it because it was very impractical. I fucking fell down a spiral staircase, just rolling down like a penis. Uh, it. It caught on fire like multiple times. 
Wait, you're telling me you're not allowed to return the inflatable penis costume with the testicle cooling internal fan? Yeah. Why in the world wouldn't you be able to return that? But, uh, but yeah, no, so I'm walking around in this thing, knocking things over, because you, you, you have to account for like an extra six feet, you know, your body is six feet wider, so you don't even, you're just knocking people's <laughs> drinks over, everybody hated me. But you had the best self-esteem in your life. With You're the new spokesman for Roman. Yeah. I even went on Halloween Adventures website and left a review saying it was a <laughs> tremendous success. And, you know, I, I think with that, I think we've given people enough of a tasty taste of what kind of murder is all about. So, once again, thank you to Jerry and Tracy Polly for having us here on Hillbilly Horror Stories. And please go out to your favorite podcasting platform and subscribe to Kinda Murdery. For Niall Madden, I'm Zevin Odelberg. And this has been Kinda Murdery. Happy Halloween. Welcome to the Hillbilly Horror Story Showcase of Your Haunted Holiday. This is Lisa. And this is Lindsay. And we are the show that does the travel review spin on paranormal places that you can go to and actually experience the hauntings. Yeah, that's right. And today we are going to share with you a short version of one of our favorite places. And I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite episodes. Of course, you can go look up the full version where we really get into the nitty gritty details all about the history, what you should expect when you get there. But today is going to be a special treat short version of one of our favorites. This is Your Haunted Holiday at the Thomas House in Red Boiling Springs, Tennessee. Now, just the name Red Boiling Springs, Tennessee, is a little terrifying, I think, Lindsay. I agree. I, You know, we booked this place and said, where is this? And we found out it's just north of Nashville. And no, I didn't see any like blood running through the water as I visualized <laughs> in reading the name of the town. Yeah, but Red Boiling Springs, Tennessee, just to give you a brief background of this place, it really started booming in the 1800s because it had healing spring water. And, you know, I, for whatever reason, I feel like the ghosts are attracted to the spring water. And this place was known for its red spring water, which for whatever reason was quite appealing back in those days. Now, the Thomas House itself was built in 1890. So definitely those prime ghost years here in the United States. Yeah, I feel like anything that's over 100 years old has potential to be haunted because typically, you know, maybe some tragedy occurred within those years. And, you know, people spent a lot of time there potentially. And Sometimes it, it, you know, we find ghosts at those kinds of locations. Absolutely. And this place was built by the Cloyd family back in the day. And 
there's a few people, obviously, who have died here over the years. I won't get into all of them in this shorthand version, but one of the more important people that you should be aware of is a little girl named Sarah Cloyd, who supposedly died in room 37. And they're not entirely sure how she died, but they believe that it was some sort of stomach ailment, maybe like appendicitis or, or something like that that could have caused her death. Now, today it is owned by the Thomas family. They purchased the house in the 90s, and they are what they would call antiques collectors. And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit more detail. Some ghostly activity that you need to look for when you go to the Thomas house, there really is a a ton of it. And it's been featured on a number of shows, including Ghost Hunters, Portals to Hell more recently. Um, but one of them is a man with a beard that is really seen throughout. It's particularly seen in the dining hall location, but he's also known for whistling. And you know, we've seen this ghost whistle on other shows. I know, uh, I think it was Graveyard Tales. They had talked about experiencing the whistle there. And one of the Cloyds that was original owner was known for whistling. So they believe that is who that is. And the other haunt that you want to look for is a little girl named Sarah Cloyd, of course, who is commonly seen holding her stomach, but she is known to play with the toys. And actually, one of the creepiest things about this place when you actually go here is the number of dolls. And in fact, right when me and Lindsay entered our room, there was a creepy doll on the dresser, which we immediately put into a drawer. Absolutely. We could not go to sleep with that doll there. So let's talk a little bit about our story very quickly. We stayed the night there, and I got to say, we've been to a lot of haunted places. But right when we pulled up, I knew this place was special in a creepy kind of way. <laughs> no doubt about it. Lisa was more scared than I've ever really seen her. And if you listen to our show, you learn that Lisa's typically the brave one. I'm a little bit on the wimpy side. Yes. So long story short, we get in here. There are antiques everywhere, uh, and some of which are kind of unexplainable, like the mannequin that sits at the top of the stairs that I think scared the crap out of me more than any ghostly activity numerous times. Like I jumped every time I would walk by it. There is a lot of stuff in this hotel and it adds to the creep factor. I can tell you that much. No doubt. So we had a long drive ahead of us. We were going all the way from Red Boiling Springs, Tennessee to Omaha, Nebraska the next day. So we had planned to do some ghost hunting and then actually go to sleep. So we do our ghost hunting. We really, really try. We stay up till about midnight, I guess I would say. And we didn't really experience much. Right. We tend to like to to stay in places if it's a hotel, like book the room and typically go to sleep because I, I find that when you're not actively looking for them all the time, it sometimes you'll, you'll have an experience when you least expect it. So Lisa and I will sit up late and ghost hunt, but we also, you know, we, we really try to, to also have a, an experience, you know, in other ways. We, that's my theory behind things. Yeah, totally. So 
We attempt to go to sleep. I am somebody who sleeps without any issues. So I fall asleep. Meanwhile, Lindsay is terrified in the bed next to me, trying to wake me up about every 10 minutes. Yeah, I could not sleep in that place. I was totally freaked out. I continued to look in the corner of the room, which is over by where the bathroom was, and there was a sink over there. And I just, I am not a psychic. I am not a medium. I just had a feeling that there was something over there watching us. And I was up all night. I finally convinced Lisa at around like 3.30, 4 in the morning to get up and leave. And this is a rare occurrence where we have actually left a haunted place early. I, we had a very long drive the next day and I saw a thunderstorm rolling in. So I said, Lisa, there's a thunderstorm coming. We got to hit the road. Now we want to beat this thing. Um, So that's what convinced her. So I brush my teeth. I'm packing my bag. Lisa's at the sink brushing her teeth. And I hear in my left ear as clear as day, It was in the room. So Lisa turns around. She still has her toothbrush in her mouth. And she looks at me and she says, was that you? And I said, no, we need to get the heck out of here. And we packed up and we we quickly left. We did say thank you so much for the whistle. We heard you loud and clear. We got to hit the road. But I got to say the Thomas house, it was amazing to hear the whistle. It was very startling. I got to say, we were pretty shook and we have never left a place in the middle of the night, but the Thomas House did that for us. If you want to hear more Your Haunted Holiday, just search Your Haunted Holiday anywhere you find your podcast or go to yourhauntedholiday.com. If you want to listen to our full version on the Thomas House, which provides a lot more information, check out episode five. It's one of our originals. Hello, and welcome to a bite-sized edition of the Couch Potato Podcast. My name is Russ. Usually I'm joined by my co-host Lucas, but Lucas decided that going to his job was more important than doing this today, but hey, you know what? Teach their own. Um, The Couch Potato Podcast is a movie-based podcast where we take a particular movie, and that's the focus of our weekly episode. Uh, We break it down into categories, so we kind of gives us some stuff to talk about with each movie. Um... For our hors d'oeuvre or our appetizer version of this show, uh, we have a category on our show called Unsolved Mysteries of the Movie, where there is a particular question that one of us may have, and the rest of us try to figure out an answer for it. Um, This is from our Friday the 13th episode we did a few weeks ago, Uh, I guess kind of in conjunction with the uh, Hillbilly Horror Stories Halloween episode. Might as well do something fairly scary, right? Um. We try to figure out how Jason Voorhees goes from being a fairly rail-thin youth to a jacked-up monster. Does he have a gym membership? Does he work out outside? We don't know, so we try to solve that uh, mystery for you. Uh, please do us a favor. Check out the Couch Potato Podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, basically wherever you get podcasts. So please hit us up. Check us out. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, the usual social media sites. Uh, I just want to give a quick uh, thank you to Jerry and Tracy Pauly for having us on. Uh, It was an honor and a privilege 
to be invited to do the uh, Hillbilly Horror Stories Halloween episode. So thank you so much, guys. We really appreciate it. So please check us out. We hope you enjoy. Uh, what's Jason Voorhees' workout program like? <laughs> I don't. Well, he's a, he's a fucking zombie. Apparently, murdering people gives him like extra muscle. Well, I mean, nope. I, I'm just trying to figure out how you could be thin and slender, and then by you know later in the series, you're just fucking jacked up. I don't know, man. Running through the woods every day, he probably fucking catches and kills deer with his bare hands. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I wonder if he's got like some kind of makeshift wooden like like fitness center in the I woods. I would love to see Jason with a wooden bow flex. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like yeah, he's doing the ads for the total gym. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> It's like, you know, like Chuck Norris wanted too much money, so they just get Jason Voorhees, but it's him out mm-hmm. in the woods. It's like, you know, like he's taking like sticks and rope, and he's just like. He's like, I, I, I'm rip, rip, ripped. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Dude, we may have just created a Halloween-themed, like, total gym ad for him. That's, uh, man, I, I would kill and die to see that. I think we should make that happen. We should write Total Gym like, hey, man, give Chuck Norris the day off. We got an ad for you. You can only run it once a year. But I think this is going to be golden. Boy, do we have an ad for you. This is, could also be like a Super Bowl ad. Oh, yeah, we could totally do that. Because I guarantee you, I am not the only person that has wondered how he gets so th- fucking just so big. Oh, not at all. Uh, that's such a funny question. I love discussing that. Well, what theories do you have? Uh, like I said, man, I think that he probably like like traps and hunts animals. I think he fucking just it, it goes full hunter gatherer mode because it's not like he can go to a store. <laughs> <laughs> oh damn it! I'm out of creatine mix again. I better run to the supermarket. <laughs> yeah, it's like sir, in, you can't. In the- you can't bring that machete in here. And the remake, it was kind of funny because he had like a fucking little farm system going on. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> He's like lived in a lumber mill or something. There's no way that he didn't have livestock or something. That would, oh man, farmer Jason would be so funny. Yeah, he's got a Bowflex and you see him like tenin- <laughs> tending to a garden. Like you see him with like that, lo- that big thick brimmed hat and he's watering like flowers and shit. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, guys, that wraps up this fourth annual edition of the Halloween episode. There was 16 total podcasts represented today. We hope you enjoyed each and every one of them, and we've listed each one in the show notes. So if you liked uh, some of the podcasts and you wanted to go back and subscribe to their show but couldn't remember because the episode was so long, just go uh, look, and we've got them listed in order that they appeared in the show notes. Thank you so much and happy Halloween.